Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Okay, excited to have her back. If you missed her the first time she was on Herd Tell, stop what you're doing, pause this, go listen to that, and then come back because she is fantastic. Thrilled to have her back. Finesse Moreno-Rivera, accomplished criminologist. She's a Young Voices contributor. She is really, really good on this stuff. Getting past the buzzwords, getting to data on things like justice, on things like criminality, on things like social justice. I'm so thrilled to have you back. Thanks for the time. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's great to be back. All right, we're going to talk about a hard one today. We're going to talk death penalty. Uh, can we just start with some honesty before we get into stats and figures and and the emotions of all this? Let's let's just start with some honesty. Here's where I'm at on the death penalty. I would love. I've been trying for years to talk myself into complete abolishment of the death penalty and never wanting to have it for any reason. But every now and then, you just get that person that beat their kid to death with a ball bat, or you know, multiple serial killers with no remorse, or you got war criminal. There's always that exception that pops up and stops me just short of that. Now, that wars against, I understand the flaws in our justice system. I understand the limitations of our government-run justice system. I understand they've got a whole lot of things they're not doing right, so I don't trust the process either. So that's where I'm at on it. You've got polling data. The polling numbers on death penalty are kind of coming down. Am I in the mainstream? Am I an outlier? Is there other people that feel like me or am I just a weirdo by myself here with that kind of an honest assessment of it? Absolutely, absolutely not, Andrew. And thank you very much for your honesty. You know, what the polls are showing and in me personally, I, I, I think that a lot of us feel the same way. What we're seeing is a strong six out of 10 adults who favor the death penalty. However, there's a huge caveat here in that they do believe that it is applied, it's not applied racially neutral, that it does not deter crime, and that it's also um, a huge a huge talking point for everyone in that they're thinking about it should be applied to the most heinous crimes, the most, the most severe that you're thinking of, you're thinking of killers or anyone of that nature. But as we all know, that's not how it's currently being applied at this time. Yeah. And even the way it's written into our laws, you know, there's still a federal death penalty. Uh, some states have abolished it like California. Some states have not like Texas, which was put in an express lane. Um, you know, everybody's dealing with it a little different. But even the way the law, like, you know, for example, sexual assaults and rapes are not qualified for the death penalty even though those are some of the most heinous crimes we have. Things like that, like even if you're pro-death penalty, just the nuts and bolts of the law, the black and white of the law and the legislation to it, there's a lot of gaps, there's a lot of holes, there's a lot of stuff that hasn't been updated in decades, if not longer. Just the machinations of government on how we manage our criminal justice system, 
is neglect a good word here where it's just kind of been left alone and we do all the debating, but it hasn't been maintained, upkept and paid attention to in the proper ways. Is that fair to say too here? I think so. I, I really do. And it's definitely one of those hot topics where, again, it can be very heated. Um, but it's one of those things where, you know, we, we should definitely have a death penalty, but wait, I don't want to be the one who, who does it. I don't want to be the person who stands up and says yes or no. Um, you know, it's really interesting, too, when you said neglect, because I for some states who even still have a death penalty, they haven't even, you know, um, executed anyone in over decades, Oregon, Pennsylvania, these types of states. So they still have the law on the books somewhat as a just in case, but they're actually just not even using it. Yeah. And you're writing in the counterpunch. I, I say this every time somebody's on, but you really need to read this piece. It's got a ton. I think I counted 38 links in this thing. There's a ton of links, a ton of information. You need to read the whole thing. Decide for yourself. We've linked to it. Make sure you go through the piece because it's way more than we're going to get to today. But when you just start stacking the data up on this stuff and you go all the way back to the colonies of the Americans and start talking about the death penalty, when you just start going through the data over and over and over again, Break it down. What's a theme that you see when you see those big data sets? Because the numbers, your eyes just start moving. Did you see a theme that's consistent when you're looking at the data of the death penalty in America for the last 260 odd years? There's there's quite a few themes. You know, you can one can definitely say that there's a political theme. Um, we all know the death penalty is utilized and also um reinforced and brought back up depending upon our administration. Um, perfect example would be Trump was continuing um, the executions when he was in office compared to Biden, who's really um, slow rolling through the process as of right now, if not halting all of them. There's actually still a racial theme. There's a theme of negligence. There's, you know, there's there is a lot that's going on where it's, you know, applied unfairly. Um, there's there's, it's completely unstandardized. I mean, when you really are looking at looking at the data and everything stacking up, it's a bit shocking that it just seems reckless how we are applying this and then also how we are carrying out the executions themselves. Yeah. Vanessa Moreno-Rivera joining us. Let's talk about the way we carry executions out, because this is something I don't hear people talk about very often. Look, I'm a history guy. I study history. There's been a lot of different ways to kill people when you need to kill somebody. All right. There, there's an, you know, it's like the movie Million Ways to Die in the West. You can execute people a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. One of the things in America is we have used lethal injection pretty much exclusively with a few very rare exceptions for quite some time now. So we got a long data set on this. One of the inherent problems is, though, in our quest to have the most humane execution possible, we also picked one of the most complicated methods of execution possible. Like, it's not a simple process to do lethal injection because people, oh, they just put a needle in. No, that, that's not how that works. Talk about that, because at the core of when we start talking about government incompetence, or we're going to talk about the FDA part of it and the medical part of it, or we're going to talk about the morality part of it making a more complicated way to executing people that made a whole bunch of problems in itself. And then that just starts to really stress test all the other fractures that's in this process to begin with. Absolutely. So um, as listeners may or may not know is the reason why we do have a death penalty and why it may not be looked at as a violation of our eighth amendment amendment against cruel and unusual punishment is because our our Congress looks to us, the American sample of people who are on juries to say, what 
the our society, you know, sees as being cruel and unusual. And to us, because we continue to lean towards the death penalty, that's why we still have it. With that being said, we're also looking at the idea of our society evolving and how we operate within executions and just being the decency is actually the, the nomenclature that is that is utilized within the Constitution. So with that being said, you're looking and trying to execute someone in the most humane way. And so as you can see throughout history, we have tried various different techniques such as firing squad or gas asphyxiation or hangings. And that's where we landed with lethal injection because it's what you just said, Andrew, you would think, okay, you just put a needle in and everything is done. However, there wasn't a lot of consideration as to how we would be able to keep up with the need for the chemicals utilized for the executions or who would be administrating them. You think about needles, you're automatically gonna think about a doctor, right? Well you have to consider that doctors have ethical concerns because they're here to help us, to actually give us life, not take it away. So what you see is that there are some doctors who are involved in executions, but they're not you know, yelling it from the rooftop or you know, talking about this with their colleagues. That may just be their moral, moral and value thinking, okay, well, if anyone should be doing it, it should be me. But what we're seeing a lot of is with a lot of these stories are that um, those who are participating in these executions are, you know, there's there's plenty of um, autopsy reports that come out that, you know, they're, they're seeing multiple holes, they're missing veins, it's taking a very long time for individuals to pass because of the products that they're using aren't what they're supposed to be. As I, I don't want to get too far ahead here, but the main problem with lethal injection is that we actually don't have the correct medicines to use, the correct combinations in order to humanely execute someone. And in the beginning, Oklahoma, who is really out there right now on the news with a lot of their box executions, they were actually the very first individuals or they had, excuse me, um, a doctor who had come up with the three three ingredients for performing executions. In the very beginning, the whole thought was that it would feel as though the inmate is falling asleep, so their heart is actually stopping. However, what we now know is that the three ingredients actually build up fluid within the lungs, so it makes the inmate feel as though they're drowning instead of actually just falling into a deep sleep and their heart stopping. So, we also know the FDA can't regulate these um, these substances, but I'll get to that as well. But you know, just really quickly, because lethal injection is fraught with a, a lot of issues when trying to come up with these chemicals. Just a few days ago, it was announced that Alabama was going to try to pursue utilizing the nitrogen asphyxia, which also was brought up by Oklahoma legislator there based on a paper from a criminal justice professor who isn't a scientist, who isn't a medical profession, looking at nitrogen. As we know, we need oxygen to breathe. So if you replace that with nitrogen, then you're going to start to feel a work as, as, as though it's gas asphyxiation, pretty much. But the paper is only based on the effects that pilots or scuba divers have experienced whenever oxygen has been taken away and they're just naturally breathing in nitrogen. So yet again, what we're seeing is, you know, just a play on people's lives, just trying to figure out 
what we can do to humanly execute these individuals when really it's just we're just we're just testing it as we go. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yeah, Vanessa Moreno Rivera. I don't want to be macabre about it and I don't want to be flipping about it, but let me just say it for the sake of the conversation because this is a grown folk adult conversation about this topic. It's a tough topic. When you really get down to it, there is no humane way to kill another human being. You got to kill them. Like you, you have to stop them from living, whether it's in combat or whatever else. When you, if you're going to kill somebody, you got to do it and you got to follow it all the way through. And the problem is human anatomy and human physiology and medical science, that's going to be a little bit different for every single human person because they chemically react to things differently. And they're, you know, people are tougher than some other people. And there's some medical science stuff that we just can't explain scientifically. We just can't. That part of it is where the morality of it comes in is because you talked about the botched executions and how horrible they could be. You noted one in your piece that went over three hours trying to get it done. The fact of the matter is, though, how do we reconcile those two things? Because it's like, look, whether it takes 90 seconds or 90 minutes, you're still killing a human being. The morality of that is something that we can't quantify in all that data set you have. So how do we deal with that part of it? I think that's really interesting because when it comes down to it, and I, I was really thinking about this and how to frame my thoughts or even try to consider what others may be thinking when listening to this or what others have thought, right? That, like Again, this is a very hot topic. I think that this comes down to your values and your morals. And we know that that shouldn't be a part of our criminal justice system, but that that truly should be apart from just looking at facts. But what it comes down to is that's what it is. We're actually saying it's okay to kill someone. And I think that a lot of people have a hard time accepting that and talking about that because then you come into the conversation of thinking about, well, does that make me better than the person that we are executing? And at the end of the day, does it? I don't know. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Also going back to what we're looking at, who are we executing? What have they done? You know, everyone's morals and values are different. And we also don't want to talk about, number one, the political lean, how these individuals are pawns. But then also we don't talk about the religious aspect of it as well. You know, uh, religion really does underscore a lot of our laws and a lot of our criminal justice system, whether we like it or not. We try to we try to say that they're separate but they're not. So, you know, I think it comes down to morality and values to say that, yes, I'm okay with killing someone. And that may mean that you're not better than the person that we're executing. Yeah. Vanessa Moreno Rivera, 
is the heart of the problem of this debate, though, is it's one thing to say on Twitter or Facebook or even in a courtroom, because you just mentioned, the you know, the judge still says it. God have mercy on your soul when you give the death sentence. It's still in there. Isn't the core of this problem is it's one thing to say it. It's one thing to say it in the courtroom. But then some human being has to go and do that. And I really wonder when we discuss this. And I do it all the time, like somebody does something is like, yep, put them under the jail. That's a that's a horrendous crime. And we all have that natural reaction. I wonder if it would change how we view this debate if we just skip ahead to the parts like, OK, this person has done something so bad that they need to be removed from society for the good of society. Are you willing to do the deed to get that done? Because I think yeah. that changes the whole perception on the whole thing right there. Yes. Absolutely. So there's there's two things that I like to comment about that. Number one is whenever I was referencing the poll earlier, that was from Pure Research Center. And, you know, I'm really happy that they did include this as a caveat that depending upon if this is an online poll or this is a phone call, that really skews how people answer and how they feel. Right. I mean, that's that's a given. If you're talking to someone on the phone, you're you're definitely going to want to skew a different way compared to having that autonomy behind behind your your computer right behind your screen you know another thing as well is i don't i don't know if you follow a lot of youtube channels but there's one called soft white underbelly andrew have you heard of that before i have one but i've not seen the youtube channel no okay so soft white <laughs> soft white underbelly <laughs> is made from i want to say his name is mark um Leda. And what he does is he primarily operates out of California and, and talks to individuals on Skid Row. He talks to people who are drug addicts. He'll talk to Johns. He'll talk to pimps plus with their prostitutes. He'll talk to prostitutes. He'll talk to gang members. He'll talk to people who have been shot. He'll talk to kids who are homeless. Um, he does follow up on individuals. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. And what's great about this channel compared to something like intervention on A&E, which I think is completely exploitive and you really don't learn anything, is that it really shows you empathy. It shows you as, you know, as a person watching, you know, society and who an individual is. It's almost humanizing. So just yesterday, I pulled up, I pulled up his channel and he had an interview with a warden slash executioner. And I mean, this guy was from Alabama, very straightforward guy, seems, you know, no, no whistles and um, bells. And, you know, when Mark said, what does it feel like to have to execute someone? And he said, you know, I don't lose any sleep about it. It's my job. And when it, when the clock strikes 12, I hit that button and it's done because it, what they had was an electric chair. But the one thing that stuck with me is that he said that I I treated them as a human being up to that single point. Me and my guards, that's what we did. And he said the number one thing and the reason why he could sleep at night is because that he knew that that person, without a doubt, was responsible and that need to be sentenced to death. And he said nine times out of 10, these individuals would confess right up to the point they're walking to the chair. And I think that also is a great segue as well. You're talking about the innocence project, but that's that's a whole nother that's a whole nother topic. But again, check that out, soft white underbelly. Um, he, but it, you could tell too he wasn't. It wasn't something that he looked forward to, but it was something that needed to be done at the end of the day. But that was that was his job, right? We're not talking about people who just sign up who just want to experience it, which I think is completely unethical. But that's a that's also another story. 
finesse Moreno Rivera. We're talking about the morality of it. It brings us back to what you dovetailed your piece in at the counterpunch. Again, you need to read this whole thing because she has just stats galore and links all over this thing. It's well-researched like her stuff always is. That's why we're happy to have her on. We're talking about the morality of this. The fact of the matter is part of the morality of being able to execute someone is, well, we followed the letter of the law. You know, you make the law the bad guy. Okay, the court, you know, a jury of his peers and the court and the legal system and all the appeals, we should have our hands clean in this execution because the entire justice system says this needs to happen. We can't say that with a straight face right now because the way the drugs are set up, the way the process is set up, the way the laws are set up, and you detail it in your piece to great detail, Pretty much every execution right now is in some shape or fashion going outside of the written letter of the law to get done. And that's just the fact it is right now. So if I'm going to be morally consistent, even if I understand that we should have a death penalty in some ways, you can't do the right thing the wrong way. So just the morality of it not being done correctly brings us right back to this moral imperative of we have to fix this system or we need to not do it until we get it fixed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because as of right now, we are operating outside of the wall just to get these executions done. I mean, you know, with the state's regulations and even the federal regulations are just shrouded in secrecy. We don't know what's being done. We don't know where they're getting these chemicals from because they're, they've been outlawed by the government to be imported from other countries. So, you know, at this point, we're operating legally to, to you know, keep these executions going. And by going, you know, Oklahoma's on pace to execute two people, I think, a month at this point. I and and they have continuously been in the media for botch executions as well. Yeah, Finesse Moreno Rivera joining us. There are 26 states that have secrecy protocols surrounding um how executions are done and the people that are involved. This is this is where we get from the morality. We can get into some regulation here because this is a government operation. It's a law enforcement function. I understand there needs to be protections of the executioner. You know, the old trope about the executioner having the hood over his head, right? Like, okay, the executioner needs some, needs some protection and they need some privacy and they need some anonymity. I don't know that that needs to extend to every single person involved, though, because it sure seems to me when we're looking at these... How do you have accountability? How do you make sure training standards are up to snuff? How do you make sure they're properly trained and know the procedures ahead of time? Because this is one of those things, look, you're only getting one shot at these things. Like, this isn't like something like, oh, we'll just do it again tomorrow if it doesn't work, right? Uh, You're there for the duration. And like, you had this horrific botched execution that took three hours. Does these secrecy laws need to be looked at or at least look at the procedures like, okay, one or two people need anonymity, but the rest of y'all, we need to have some accountability here. Absolutely. You know, to me, there should only be at the, at the most two people within the room. Um, there doesn't, there shouldn't be more than that. And everyone should have a reason as to why they are, whether that's the warden and then a doctor, preferably a doctor, but then that's it. There should be some type of accountability because then to me, you're also just shrouding in secrecy, your, your own morals and your own value. You're just hiding behind something because you, you, you maybe you're just scared to admit it to yourself. Maybe you're scared just to admit it to, you know, the people who you work with, your family, your friends, society as a whole. There's no reason why we these regulations should not be transparent. 
And the fact that they're not just, again, goes to show that something just isn't right. Yeah. Finesse Moreno Rivera joining us. You talk about the Eighth Amendment. It has pretty vague language in this regard. That's not unusual in the Constitution. It has a lot of vague language in it because the idea was, well, this is the overarching thing. And then you states go figure it out and make legislation for it. So in and of itself, that's not an evil. But there is room for legislative fixes here. We're not going to change the Eighth Amendment. That's not going to happen. What legislative fixes should be worked towards here? Even a state that wants to have the death penalty. What should be some of the things they're working for? Should it be the FDA gap where the FDA is no longer regulating the drugs? Should it be the medical staff that's involved that actually physically does these, like some kind of a specific training for them uh, since most doctors won't do it? You know, do you do whatever that may be? Is it a law enforcement fix on the system that gets them there? What's some of the legislative things? Because that's an attainable goal that we should be working towards. Oh, goodness. There's so many. (laughs) So if we were to start at the very beginning, let's just look at um, how states judicial systems are set up. So a perfect example, Andrew, you know, you mentioned earlier Texas because they are way ahead of any other state. I believe it's Texas, Florida, and then Virginia for the most executions. The reason why Texas for multiple reasons besides racial disparities um, has such a high number of executions is predominantly based upon how its judicial judicial system is set up. So number one being they have elected officials and those elected, elected officials are going to really be the voice box for you know the population which for Texas, they have a lot of proponents for a death penalty. Number two would be that they don't have a public defense system set up. So whenever someone who can't afford an attorney is has a capital case and they're sentenced to death, they are using a court-appointed attorney who may not have or may not be as seasoned with, you know, capital offense um, cases, such as working with someone who's working, been on, the, you know, about to go on a death penalty, uh, they're overworked, um, list goes on. But, you know, another interesting thing, too, is it wasn't until the 90s that Texas allowed for jurors to consider mitigating evidence. Mitigating evidence, as we all know, is a huge factor um, because that's, you know, including things such as your mental health or anything from your youth. I know that the um, the Florida shooter, there's a case going on right now, or excuse me, a trial. And a lot of proponents are, or proponents who are excuse me, opponents against the death penalty are saying, look at his background, look at his youth. You know, he's his mother drank a lot. He has a lot of mental health issues. So definitely number one, you look at, your, you know, the state and how its judicial system is set up. So Texas is a perfect example. Number two, you know, just getting the FDA involved. And I know that goes really against their oath of protecting, protecting the United States citizens. But at the same time, someone needs to be regulating these drugs that are being utilized. Number three, bring in scientists, bring in doctors. There should be scientists who are coming up with these quote unquote cocktails that are being utilized to execute individuals. There haven't been. They are literally just these individuals who work for these prisons and just come up with and say, oh, I think X, Y, and Z would work because this will stop the heart. This will stop the breathing. And we know that there's no science that's backing all of this, but these combination of drugs. And like you mentioned earlier, not one thing is going to work for everyone. Everyone's different. Um, You know, also making sure that, you know, we're keeping out, you know, um, foreign imports, making sure that we're making, you know, 
having a really tight home regulations about what's being used. So there's so many things that need to be done. Um, and also standardizing protocols. There is no standardized protocol, which to me is just insane thinking about we're actually executing someone and there's no protocol for it. Everything's different, whatever, you know, it's kind of like whatever they say goes. And I, there's just so much that needs to be done policy wise that it's almost like, you know, where do you start? Well, our friends that are against the death penalty in total will look at you and throw their hands up and say some very unnice words and go, well, that's why you ban it. That's going to be their answer to that question. Right. Is, is there a refutation to that other than the you know 30 minutes we just spent talking about it? You know, I would like to see it banned, but at the same time, it's, it goes back to that moral values. It goes back to religion. It goes back to the politics. And it also goes back to, you know, I sincerely can say that I have never lost anyone close to me and been in the position of knowing that that and it's like the 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 perpetrator is sentenced to death i i can't sit here and say that my mind wouldn't change if it wasn't my mother my father or a family member um i i don't know but at this time what i feel is that if we're gonna do it then it we better be following the the letter the letter of the law we better be doing it the way that we should be doing it um, because if we're not, then what's the point? Then we're just killing someone. Yeah. Vanessa Moreno Rivera, you do all this research on an analysis on the justice system. We have to bring this up because I think it's the only it's only fair to discuss this. There is a large strain of thought when it comes to the death penalty that even the people that do some of the more heinous crimes, <laughs> heinous, that's not a word, even yes. some of the folks that do the most heinous crimes. Um, people will say, look, most of those people, it wasn't their first offense. It was multiple offenses. The system creates them. And now we're going to use the system to kill what the system created. I don't go quite that far with it, although I'm, I'm empathetic to some of that in certain circumstances. I don't think you can broad brush it that far. But that's something a lot of people feel, especially people who are basically, you know, career institutionalized criminals who've spent mo most of these folks on death row have spent most of their lives in prison because of how long it takes. What about that argument? Because you've done the data on this, you know, those people, you know, I think the average in death rows, you know, decades. What do you say to that? Of like, look, we're creating criminals to kill something we ourselves created. That's immoral in and of itself. I don't necessarily describe to that, but I understand the argument. I understand the argument too, but I, I I'm, I'm with you. You just can't make that broad that broad stroke. You 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 just can't. You honestly can't. I mean, we we definitely create it. We are a society who we punish rather than empower and help and intervene. But at the same time, I, I don't think that I can completely agree with that. It's Talking about the death penalty as punishment, one of those things that's a linguistic thing we should stop doing because it's not really a punishment. It's an intervention. You know, you're not punishing them. You're killing them. That's that's the end. That's a period. That's that's there's nothing after that. Should we be changing the language, how we discuss these sorts of things? Is it a nomenclature problem on top of everything else where we're still talking about it like it's the Wild West and we're hanging people when this is really almost I hate to say sanitized because you're still taking somebody's life, but 
it's years of courtroom and it's years. It's it's such a long process now. Do we need to just change how we talk about it all together? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that we all need to just sit down and be honest with each other and, you know, say what it is. You are taking someone's life. You are killing someone at the end of the day. That's this is what we're doing. I mean, it is a long process. I mean, it's a that takes a lot of money. And, you know, on top of that, we're not even really sanitizing anything. You know, we still have rampant crime. We're still, you know, sending people to the chair. That's what, you know, that's an old, again, old nomenclature, right? Um, it's, it's not an intervention. It's not sanitizing anything. We still have criminals, you know, every single day doing horrible things. And it's it's not deterring them. I mean, there's plenty of research that's out there that's saying it's, it's not a deterrence. We are literally just killing someone just to say an eye for an eye. That's what this is. Yeah. This is one of the harder topics to discuss because it's life and death and it's it's life and death with government sanctioning, which is really hard to get into the morality of it. But Finesse Moreno Rivera, I so enjoy having you on. We're going to do a long form on this because there's a there's a whole piece to this on the medical side uh, that we just kind of brushed by. But we really need to get into because there's a lot of ethics and things that go into that. And there's a lot of government regulation that needs to be fixed in that. So we're going to have you back. We're going to do a long form on this topic because there's so much to do on this. Um, and I want to read up on a few things before I get into it because you're a lot smarter than I am. So I want to I want to do some research and be boned up for it. But we're definitely having you back. Can you let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with what you're doing between now and they get to see you again on Hertel until we get you back, my friend? Of course. Thank you, Andrew. Um, recently, I uh, created a Twitter account so I can be found at Finesse Marino. And then also, I can always be followed on my LinkedIn, where I um, continuously uh, upload any articles that I have completed through Young Voices. Fantastic. And um, I'm going to get you on Twitter Supper Club. We got to get you involved on that, because that's, <laughs> that's one of the great things on Twitter is us doing our food stuff all the time. So you might maybe you can start Twitter Orchid Club or something. You can do that oh, with all it. your wonderful your lovely orchids back there, which is why we really have you on the show so we can look at your orchids. Um, <laughs> we kid, you do great work. We greatly appreciate you. She's also a Young Voices contributor. You can see all her stuff on her page. Let's do a lighter topic next time because I always enjoy talking to you. But you all, look, you do criminality. This is what you do. I, I know. You know, it's, it's so funny. My fiance recently said, you know, why can't you just write about something happy and good? So I think I'll be doing something on prison reform here um, here soon. So hopefully next time you have me on, I'll be talking about um, some good things that have been happening within the criminal justice realm. We all need some good news, too. So that'll be great. Finesse Moreno Rivera, you are fantastic, madam. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you.
Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. We're talking about the war on drugs, which is one of the worst named things ever for something that has been highly destructive, very expensive, and has gotten us nothing closer to what it was set out to do. We're talking to Finesse Moreno-Rivera about it. Um, let's talk some of the policy stuff here. You walked us through it in your piece, and Blavity, we're linking to it like we always tell you. Please read the entire piece for yourself, and she links to a lot of source documentation that you also need to read up on this. Look, information is the key to a complex issue, and this has a lot of information in it. Um, before we get to Biden, you already mentioned him. Let's back up. The Trump administration in 2018 did some temporary class-widening scheduling of fentanyl stuff. This has repercussions, but for folks that don't know, when we're talking about the drug classes and that sort of thing, what is it and what does it mean when they do things like that? Usually what this means is that they can be very much harsher punishment for individuals, no matter the weight or the amount of a given drug. So this is very similar to looking back at crack cocaine itself. We're looking at the sentencing disparity in the amount of the drug itself. So instead of looking at the harm that it causes, it's really looking at, at the amount that the individual may be possessing at the time. Yeah, and you have a stat here that uh, the majority of offenders arrested on this program are black street-level dealers at the end of the drugs distribution chain, not the movers and the distributors that, you know, they claim that they're normally going after. Law enforcement like everybody else. They like to get the lowest hanging fruit. Quoting you here, very few incarcerations have mitigated the availability supply of fentanyl. As of 2019, 75% of individuals prosecuted and sentenced for the fentanyl offenses were people of color. But then the next paragraph, you bring it up, the real problem here, the Biden administration, they also extended the scheduling policy last year and this year both. What does it mean in practical terms that they continue to continue this policy? To repeat myself. Absolutely. What this means in layman's terms is that they are continuing the same thing that they did with crack cocaine in that unfortunately what we're starting to see is that instead of seeing the suppliers, the individuals who should be incarcerated, we're seeing these low level, we're seeing these low level individuals who are providing the drugs, predominantly African-American, going back into the jail and prison systems due to their involvement with fentanyl. This isn't ever, you know, this is whack-a-mole. If all you're doing is hitting the street-level stuff and you've got the stats in your piece about how much of this comes through from overseas, how much of this goes through government-controlled points of access, they, they're not stopping this stuff. They're just getting the street-level folks. That's doing absolutely nothing for the wider problem other than, you know, filling the prisons up with street-level people who are mostly repeat offenders anyway, right? Absolutely, Andrew. And unfortunately, right now, what we're seeing with our incarceration rates is about 85% of individuals who are currently incarcerated are incarcerated given their use of drugs or selling of drugs. So this really isn't doing much of anything. However, looking back at Trump's administration, the move is what they thought was good at the time, considering that fentanyl, the source is predominantly from China. And although China has tried to regulate their fentanyl chemical manufacturing, again, criminals will be criminals. They always be finding this loophole. And so what you'll find is a lot of individuals such as myself can get online, Facebook, um, or the dark web and able to purchase chemicals that are similar to fentanyl and create my own products myself and then sell it on the street. 
and as you bring up in your piece, um, the problem with, you know, prohibition, which is just we're going to have this war on drugs and it's going to be this massive federal funding and it's the main income stream for law enforcement and right on down the line is it exacerbates all the problems already inherent in the system. Racial biases, drug overdoses, disease, corruption, uh, the violence that goes around it. All of that gets exasperated because now it's a business model on top of being a criminal philosophy of trying to abate crime, right? Yes, absolutely. It's a, it's a perfect business model if you think about it. I mean, unfortunately, what's happening is, is again, people of color are the ones who are paying the price for this. No one's really taking any, no one's really taking any type of responsibility in admitting that what we continue to do is wrong, what we have done is wrong, and we're still continuing to make the same mistakes. Black individuals are the ones who continue to pay for these mistakes as well. And unfortunately, what we're seeing now, especially with Biden's extension for fentanyl, it's not getting any better. And although he may be enacting these harm reduction programs, he still is not doing any better with keeping black, predominantly black males out of jails and prisons. Now, there is some good news on this. You took a public health approach to some of your solutions that you would like to see put out. Um, Black Americans statistically do respond really well to public health programs. We've got statistics. They do. So what's a couple of the things you were pointing out that they should take more of a public health and prevention standpoint than a punitive and law enforcement standpoint that might actually do some good here? Absolutely. Some of the solutions include safe injecting sites. I know that there was a lot of uproar on um, online as well as a lot of jokes with Biden mentioning with his harm reduction programs, you know, syringes, for example, free syringes. That's a big deal because that also prevents diseases. So I know also there was a lot of pushback from the communities for safe injecting sites. Let's be honest, who wants a safe injecting site right down the street, say from, you know, their, their kids' school or right around the corner from their from their neighborhood. So that's something that has had a lot of pushback, but has also shown to be very successful in preventing, again, the long-term goal of drug overdoses. Yeah, and one of the ones that popped through um, the news cycle and made headlines uh, back uh, a couple months ago was the crack pipe sleeve thing, if you remember that one, where everybody mm-hmm. got in an uproar because they were, well, because the problem is, they were sharing pipes and spreads hepatitis C and were having HIV spikes in drug communities and everything else. So they were trying to do that and everybody went, no, 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 they're giving out crack pipes. It's like, well, these are people that's going to do that anyway. So this goes back and I'm going to ask the question again, because we touched on it at the beginning of our conversation, but I think it bears emphasis. How do you have that conversation with somebody who's just going to hear the term pipe or just going to hear the term injection site or syringe and they're just going to recoil is there any way to have that conversation with someone who's like, no, you can't go from zero to 60 on addiction. You've got to give them some intermediate steps. These are those intermediate steps, or you get these communicable diseases that are not going to stay confined to just the drug community. Unfortunately, what I found when speaking with individuals who don't condone harm reduction, who do get that pushback, is they have yet to experience something that in their life. And life is part of living and learning. And not that I would ever wish anyone to themselves or have a loved one who has been through um, drug addiction, but it's really something that you don't see that is important and steps that need to be taken unless you lived it yourself or been in that situation or lived in those communities. 
So until we are able to have those open conversations and learn from each other, I honestly don't know how we're going to get over this negative stigma of individuals who do need assistance when working with drug abuse. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. Now, you had touched on the one that's the real uh, firing point for a lot of the debate over the drug. You bring up decriminalization. Get into the nomenclature for me because legalizing and decriminalization are two different things. So how are you using it and define the term for folks so that they all know what we're talking about here? Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up, Andrew. So there are different definitions for decriminalization. And a lot of different countries or even states, as I cited within the article for Oregon, define it in different ways. For myself, I would see decriminalization as non-punishable depending upon the amount of drug. And when I say decriminalization, I also mean decriminalizing, making legal, non-punishable, all drugs that we're seeing. I think it's also important to note too, by doing so, we can really work on the racial bias that we're seeing. We can work on um, the diseases that are being spread. We can work on the corruption that's occurring. We can also work on taking away the power of these of the drug smugglers and drug traffickers themselves. We started out talking about the war on drugs and the history of it. We mentioned the opioid crisis. What's some of the lessons from the war on drugs that we should be applying to the opioid crisis? How much of it is a continuation and maybe an evolving of the same problem? How much of it is a very different thing that should be addressed differently, do you think? I think that the opioid crisis is something that should be should be addressed separately. And unfortunately, I see it being ongoing. There have been three waves in the opioid crisis. The first being, unfortunately, the abuse of prescription drugs, which was the over, which was caused by overprescribing the opioids. Thank you, Purdue Pharma. Going on to second, given the fact that supply and demand was interrupted by this, um, individuals were the high, the demand was high for opioids but the supply wasn't there. So then you are seeing the second wave individuals shifting to heroin. And now in our third wave, which is even more deadlier, it's fentanyl, which is also, as I've already discussed, combined with cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, which is also driving our drug overdoses. So unfortunately, we really have to take this opioid crisis completely different because what we're seeing is that it's going in waves for us in this country. And as of right now, we are starting to shift primarily into a fourth wave where I do believe that instead of being reliant upon opioids such that are plant-based in themselves, we're going to start seeing a lot more deaths as we have already seen with fentanyl that are man-made. I really do think that we're starting to make a move because of opioids into a more synthetic space for drug use. And that's just going to become even more deadlier for us. Yeah, it's going to be more deadly for the people. and It's going to be a whole lot harder to police because now you don't need a supply chain. You can make this stuff in your sink. It's going to be a real big mess. Let's round this off this way. Uh, Finesse Moreno-Rivera joining us. Um, How do we, we understand the federal government is a leviathan and it's hard to get a hold of it for any good reason whatsoever. What can the average person do to start talking about this? I'm talking about on their social media. I'm talking about amongst their friends and family when these things come up, maybe in their communities when they're having, you know, a community meeting about 
you know, we just had it in Parkersburg, West Virginia, where they shut down trying to get a rehab for suddenly build, even though they badly need one because the residents freaked out. Stuff like that. How can people in a practical way, not buzzwords, not theory, not, you know, the big things we talk about, just when they're talking to each other on Facebook or texting or whatever the case may be, that can move this conversation forward, that they can start mixing into their discussions of, hey, this is actually a problem that we all need to deal with and we can do this X, Y, Z. I think it's really important for there to be open you know, conversation and discussion, similar to what you just said, Andrew, being able to be open and speaking with others. I think it's also very important that we continue to educate each other. A lot of times, again, thinking about a socioeconomic level, just really having uh, those silos created, you know, unfortunately, really can hamper our conversations about things that may be affecting others more than ourselves. I think that just taking the time to also getting to know your community, getting to know your neighbor, paying attention to what's going on within your surroundings as well. Because when you open your eyes, you're walking down streets, no matter if it's within a small town, with, with, with whether that's in a city, you can really tell the detriment that has occurred due to drug use, uh, drug abuse. Um, and so I think it's really time for us as a country to really open our eyes, be honest, take responsibility, and start making the movement to help these individuals in taking a more health avenue rather than taking a more punitive one. Now let me see you go off like a ball. Yeah, welcome back to Her Tell. Okay, she's becoming one of our favorites, but that's for good reason because she is great and wonderful. She has a couple of our long forms on communism and on Machiavelli, her favorite subject. Make sure you check them out. But we're going to talk a little current events today. She's been writing in reason. Amanda Griffiths, she's back. How are you doing, ma'am? I'm wonderful, Andrew. Wonderful to talk with you and your listeners. Yeah, we love having you on. Okay, we got some trouble out in your land out there in California. Uh, you left coast folks do some funky thing. Let, let's just start with this because we're going to be talking about cryptocurrency and regulation here. I, I let's I like to start with honesty, right? I've tried, I've tried, Amanda. I've tried to understand cryptocurrency. I've tried to learn about it. I've I've honestly tried. There's people I really respect who've done really well with this, who know this stuff inside and out. They think it's great. I know other people who there's a little bit of an ick factor and there's some weird, dirty stuff that goes on with this. Just start with cryptocurrency for the folks that just like, honestly, just the honest skeptic people. Mm -hmm. Tell us your definition of cryptocurrency, where you're at on it. I'll tell you where I'm at. I tried. I can't get there. I, I don't want it regulated into oblivion, but I don't really understand it either. Where are you at on this? Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, how much how much do you understand fiat currency, really, and how that works? But uh, I didn't say oh, it's true. Um, you know, I, I'm similar to you. We're all beginners because every time we learn something about cryptocurrency, Andrew, the, the, the market changes. Cryptocurrency, it casts a really wide net. First of all, you had this initial cryptocurrency. Everyone knows the name or almost everyone knows the name. Bitcoin. Now, Bitcoin is a specific type of cryptocurrency. You also have various types of decentralized finance. Uh, you might have heard of NFTs, non-fungible tokens, um, <clears throat> sort of digital artwork. Uh, 
you might have heard of Ethereum. Ethereum is a completely different type of cryptocurrency than Bitcoin, for instance, because it allows creators to build various platforms, to build other coins. And everyone's asking, well, why do I even, why does this even matter? Why do I care? Cryptocurrency initiates not just a new advent of currency competition, where people who are in regimes with unstable currencies or currencies that they don't trust can exit those regimes, exit those currencies, and try out other forms of exchange. Uh, currency competition in this regard also allows us to really rethink what the way that we denominate value can mean. That's a very broad, very intellectual answer for you, but I'm excited for the potential of the cryptocurrency and what's called the Web3 decentralized finance space. First of all, because of the accessibility options that it provides people who don't have a stable either way of storing assets or even uh, when their fiat currency isn't a stable store of value. Uh, and I'm also excited for the way that it changes the way that we think about how we express value. Not all cryptocurrencies do the same thing in terms of why they're valuable. So cryptocurrency, hugely wide net, and there are a bunch of different types. Yeah, Amanda Griffith joining us. Uh, Web3 is a whole different beast. That's like trying to explain the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe instead of just one character or even one movie. Let's put that to the side for a second because we'll really lose folks. I'll you lose me. I honestly. Yeah. You, you know, this is your area of expertise, though, the relationship between the individual, the market, and the state. All economics breaks down to the relationship between the individual, the market, and the state. We're going to readers digest this so even I can understand it and then you can explain it to folks. The idea between crypto and the selling point, you just touched on it, was, well, we're going to back the state off, and this is going to be more individual to individual and individual to market, and the state's not going to be involved. Critics like me, being upfront here, was like, well, that's going to be okay for a while, but at some point, the state's going to come for this. And that's where we are now, where it was inevitable there was going to be friction, because when you set something up to reduce the role of the state in a currency you used fiat. That's another term you can break down. This is probably a good way to explain it. At some point, the state was going to come for this because there's no way they, they cannot coexist. They're going to have friction. That's what we're seeing now, like in California, like in the EU, like in other places, the states and the governments are coming for this currency. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to a certain extent, they can. There are certain types of cryptocurrencies that can be monitored can be regulated. There are other types like Bitcoin that really can't. But what is true and what you touched on, to be fair, is that when you have states coming for, uh, you know, going after cryptocurrency, anytime you have, let's, let's take it out of cryptocurrency, anytime you have a government, a centralized body coming in and saying, we're going to centrally plan this, we're going to manage what businesses can and can't do with this operation. Then what happens if you've got if you've got people, if you've got a stock market, for instance, what happens when when the government tries to overregulate uh, the stock market or private companies? Well, uh, what happens is that a lot of times traders will exit and that will pr put downward pressure 
on that market. Now, sometimes there needs to be more trust in the market so people are able to say, okay, I actually trust that this is being regulated a little bit more. I'm going to buy in. But because with cryptocurrency, the entire pitch is we're exiting, we're exiting this other institution, this fiat institution, this, this idea of a centralized central bank setting the price or setting the value of something arbitrarily. When those same regulators come in and say, we want to monitor, we want to police, we want to track these users, that again, that's going to put downward pressure on the crypto market. So anytime, for instance, you have a, hu a huge state like California, a very populous state like California, um, that is denied access to various types of cryptocurrency or cryptocurrency competition uh, and exchange, as there was a bill recently that attempted to do that, uh, you are going to not just have problems in California with California investors and what they're able to do. That bears on the worldwide crypto market because you are, you are cutting off a lot of potential investors from the uh, and potential creators right developers from the overall market you're cutting off infinite really infinite avenues for innovation we don't even know what we don't know So that gets us to this bill in um, California. Amanda Griffiths joining us. This bill in California. Let's before we get into what happened. Let's start with what it is. I'm, mm -hmm. I want to be. We need to walk through this kind of slowly because there's a couple of layers here. AB twenty two sixty nine. This was a Democrat sponsored bill. Of course, Democrat has supermajority in California. What the Democrats want, they usually get within a few minor, you know, sometimes the constraints of the law, sometimes the opposition gets a little wave at when they go by on things. This got pushed through pretty fast. What was actually in this bill before we get to what happened after the bill was passed, AB 2269, this cryptocurrency bill? Yes, AB 2269. So this is a bill that is very similar if your listeners are familiar with, uh, and it's okay if they're not uh, familiar, at least heard of New York's bit license law. If anyone has talked about cryptocurrency uh, and how, how, you know, how easy it is to deal in cryptocurrency in New York, it's not great. A lot of it has to do with the bit license law. There are two main problems with AB 2269. Um, now, one of them is that it would have forced all cryptocurrency exchanges to apply for and obtain state-issued licenses in order to operate in California. I will break that down a little bit more. A cryptocurrency exchange <clears throat> is a, a platform, any type of platform, like an app or uh, a, a website uh, where cryptocurrencies can be bought, sold, swapped, anything at all. Any any place where you exchange, think of any place where you exchange 
money, any place where you swap different types of currencies, you know, you go to the airport, you have a currency exchange, cryptocurrency exchanges like that. And a lot of times it's digital, it's on an app. Coinbase is a very famous cryptocurrency exchange, but they're also kind of smaller, more niche ones. And these smaller, more niche cryptocurrency exchanges that are just getting their start are very often those places where uh, they'll carry newer tokens that are a lot more volatile. But before crypto, uh, sorry, before bit, um, <laughs> wow, before those major. See, now you're doing it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because you got exactly. all these letters after your name and I can't figure it out. And look at you. Crypto coin, what? Okay. <laughs> before Coinbase uh, and other, other areas, other platforms are able to scoop them up. So this would have required all of these different exchanges to get a banking license. That would really kneecap these small exchanges because once again, you are applying to the state and these state regulators that don't understand how cryptocurrency exchange really works, it would allow, it would keep them, it would curtail them, cut them off from being able to get in on this game. And then of course it would cut off consumers access to these different platforms and applications. And again, it would cut off their access to yes, more volatile assets, but it would cut them off to those assets in those initial stages when usually if they're going to skyrocket in price, they do so during those very, very early launch stages. Okay. And Amanda Griffith joining us. We need to do one more foundational thing here before we get into what happened. California sure. is not a normal economy. California is the largest subnational economy in the world. What do I mean by that? If, if California was its own country, it'd be the sixth largest economy in the world. It would be slotted somewhere between Germany and India, which is remarkable when you consider sometime in the spring, India is going to be the most populous nation in the earth. Okay, Germany is the powerhouse of Europe. It almost single-handedly drives the EU. This is a massive economy. And to kind of go back to what you said earlier, California knows this. Gavin Newsom knows this. Uh, policymakers know this, especially policymakers on the left and in the Democratic Party. Worldwide, folks know that if you can get certain things passed in California, it has worldwide implications because of the size of California's economy. That's why things like their regulation of the gig economy, their regulation of crypto, this is not just a U.S. thing. This really is a global test case, just like as if a Germany, a Russia, a China, these other countries are trying to get in on regulating uh, cryptocurrency. If they can do it at California, it will have worldwide implications. Absolutely. And I should have mentioned, by the way, there is, I said there, there were two problems. Uh, with with this bill, really, and the first is what we just touched on with that uh, that limiting. You know, you have to apply for this banking license. That's a costly, that's a cumbersome waiting game, even to be a cryptocurrency exchange. Uh, there's something else because there are a lot of people who deal in cryptocurrencies that aren't technically exchanges, right? These are like developers and people like that. Um, now. Even there, this the second prong of the bill that is so problematic, this, uh, this, uh, this assembly bill, would have banned all businesses not licensed by the California Department of Financial Protection and Innovation, you talk about a lot of letters, DFPI, from dealing in stable coins. And again, 
if you're not licensed by the California DFPI, you're not a bank. So big banks could deal in these things called stable coins and non-banks, these small niche developers, these individuals couldn't. Why are stable coins important? This is an area where I and I was initially kind of skeptical about you know, what what's the big deal behind a stable coin if it's just like a dollar. Well, stable coins and here's where we get to the worldwide implications. This stable coins are kind of like a middleman. Uh, they allow exchanges and developers to convert tokens and transfer information. If you've got an uh, if you've got a platform that holds US dollars um, as an asset, which just about every every crypto platform does, uh, if they hold them on reserve, usually those dollars are stored in the form of the stablecoin USDC, which is the digital US dollar token. It's pegged to the value of the US dollar. And again, Stablecoins are pegged to these more value, or sorry, these more stable uh, stores of value, like the U.S. dollar, and that makes them a little bit more secure. Why don't people just use dollars? Well, partly because it's, they're easier to transact. They're easier even than a credit card. You don't need to have access to a bank to have access to a stablecoin, which is great because there are a lot of unbanked and underbanked individuals in this country and around the world who don't have access to lines of credit and who don't have safe access to banks, who don't know that their money is even gonna be safe in a bank. So they have been able for the first time ever in history to use things like stable coins that are essentially the same thing as a dollar or another type of currency to get in and actually have access to financial independence and to be able to buy things. Uh, in Ukraine, for instance, these things have been a godsend to people. So stable coins are immensely valuable all around the world. They're so much more secure. And again, with stable coins, this bill here would have banned any business that's not licensed by the California. Department of Financial Protection and Innovation from dealing in stable coins. That if, if you're dealing in cryptocurrency, you're dealing in some level on stable coins because a lot of conversions are taking place somehow through that middleman of a stable coin. This would have basically cut off Californians from crypto and, and uh, de decentralized finance development and access would have been very damaging. Griffiths joining us. Okay, so that's that's a lot of runway to get to what happened. What happened was Gavin Newsom, current governor of California, who it's no big secret has other ambitions, national ambitions, who is running a lot of media laying the groundwork because it's no big secret he really wants to be president of the United States sooner rather than later. 
He vetoes this thing. Now, this is a Democratic bill through a Democratic supermajority that Democrats really, really want, and he vetoes the thing. But his explainer was telling because of why he actually did what I always tell. I always ask politicians, so credit here. He was very specific on why he vetoed this legislation. But the answer is not what cryptocurrency folks are going to want to hear, was it? No, it was not. This is another classic case of a politician doing what appears to be the right thing for all the wrong reasons. It was a surprise that uh, Governor Gavin Newsom, I, I call him Gavin with the good hair because he does have good hair. Uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom uh, did veto this bill uh, that was passed by and, and sponsored by fellow Democrats. So people were wondering, why? Why did this happen? Well, in a statement, uh, Governor Newsom said, and I will quote here from this statement, that it was premature. Oh, well, why? It was premature to lock a licensing structure in statute without considering forthcoming federal actions. Basically, this is paving the way for more stringent federal regulation. Not only is Governor Newsom saying it's premature, and it's not, pre it's not premature to pass this bill because it might cut off innovation in the crypto market. It might, it's not premature to pass this bill because it, uh, it doesn't take, it doesn't acknowledge the speed and the, the rapidity of that innovation and the lack of bureaucratic understanding of the space, it's premature because we actually need more regulation and it needs to come from a more centralized body. It's a huge problem from an in foreign industry whose entire value add, whose entire pitch is we are decentralized. We're all about decentralization. And if you kick the can to further and further decentralized body, you're doing what any type of regulation will do in that regard, which is initiate central planning and then cut off that decentralized potential, cut off that innovation that can only happen when more people are able to do more things and have more choices. Amanda Griffiths joining us. I actually, in a vacuum, agree with the statement that he issues here when he says a more flexible approach is needed to ensure regulatory oversight can keep up with rapidly evolving technology and use cases. I agree with that in a vacuum. The thing is, is I can read. I know quite a bit about Governor Newsom because I study him because I do think he's going to be a political force in the future. He held, like we already said, he helms the sixth largest economy in the world. I have to pay attention to how this man governs. I know he's coming at that from the different angle than I am, even though I agree with him in a vacuum there. I and folks like you, even though I don't fully understand cryptocurrency, I'm skeptical of it in a lot of ways. I don't want it regulated into oblivion. I think it's an option that folks should be entitled to have, even though there's some icky stuff that, quite frankly, in a again, look in a, in a vacuum, yeah, there's some stuff about crypto that probably needs to be regulated because there is untoward stuff and there is icky stuff and there is criminal activity involved. At the same time, I also know how government regulation works, and you're going to get the baby out with the bathwater with it. Is there an answer here? Because governments are never going to stop trying to regulate this. Crypto's always going to try to fight against it. But at some point, you know, it does have to become fungible. 
I hate to use that term because NFTs kind of killed this, but it has to become fungible tokens if it's going to be used by the common folks, right? At some point, it's going to get into the area where there's going to be banking, there's going to be regulation, there's going to be financial oversight. And frankly, there should be a little bit of it. Do we have any happy mediums here? Are there any easy answers at all? Or is this just going to be an ungodly mess for time and eternity? It should be a bit of a mess, you know, when people may, but but so is any type of market, right? Uh, now, when you have people who are criticizing as as you did, and I think there are there are valid criticisms of the of the crypto space, um, and you're and you're criticizing the the unregulated aspects of it. A lot of times, these errors do get caught very quickly by users because you're able to see, okay, this looks kind of scamish. You know, people bring up all the time the recent debacle with these two currencies, Terra and Luna, which were, uh, you know, ostensibly a, an algorithmic stablecoin scheme. Uh, Terra and Luna, this wasn't really a true stablecoin that was pegged to the dollar. You had one coin that was pegged to another coin that was sort of pretending to be pegged to the dollar. This was a bit different from something that's actually like the US dollar token. We don't have to get in the weeds on that. But the idea is that was caught with something with with the speed that is much, much more rapid than you say, you know, than, than you have scams in the stock market being caught typically. That's not to say that there shouldn't be any type of federal regulation, but what that type of regulation should entail is a lot, a lot of input from creators, from independent investors, from people who know this space and understand it, and who are able to give feedback, give input. It needs to be flexible. All I can say in terms of that is that working with various you know, big centralized bodies is not going to be the answer. Any regulation of this space has to be incredibly flexible, has to acknowledge the potential, yes, for fraud, and also acknowledge the potential for government encroachment and over-encroachment in this space that is supposed to be an exit ramp. It also needs to acknowledge the fact that to an extent, we can regulate cryptocurrency. To an extent, we can track users. And to an extent, for a lot of cryptocurrencies, we can't. And eventually, I think there will be a reckoning that comes due with that where we'll, people will recognize there are always going to be avenues to getting around uh, oversight. And the question has to be, do we want those avenues to only be available to bad actors? or do we want these avenues to be open to people who are trying to escape totalitarian, authoritarian regimes who are using this veneer of oversight uh, in order to cramp down on people's access? Talking in particular about regimes like China here, Venezuela, where cryptocurrencies have been in, have been an incredible asset uh, in, in more ways than one. So when we talk about regulation, we talk about oversight. We need to ask ourselves, okay, when does that regulation also need to bear on the regulators themselves?
Yeah, Amanda Griffiths, that ties into how you ended your piece that, you know, if you're regulating because it's not a bureaucratic enough regulation, that should be a red flag to liberty minded and freedom loving people. Look, I don't go as far as some of our libertarian things. I understand we need to have some regulation. I just think we should be skeptical and challenging. I think regulation should be like negative editing. You you have to sell me on why we need the regulation, not the other way around. That's not how we do it. I'm a realist. Where do you see this fight going next? The governor obviously vetoed this. They'll probably just turn around and pass something really similar next legislative session because this is California and this isn't going anywhere. Um, the federal stuff may be a while because Congress looks like it's going to probably be split or at the best, very contentious. Where do you see this going next? They may, although I'm interested because you did mention that Governor Newsom is cracking his knuckles for a presidential run. I'm intrigued by that. I do think it will be entertaining, although I've learned my lesson about hoping that people run simply for entertainment value. I'll just put it that way. Um, He's not but, unskilled. I, I, look, he's he's good on camera. He's not unskilled. You can say whatever you want. He's per, he, you know he's very progressive. But you know, California people people on the right reflexively just knock everything California does. California is a big economy. California's got they've got selling points. No, you can't just write him off as a candidate. You can't. Not at all. Not at and all. I'm not as supportive of his at all. I've been very critical of him. No, you can't just automatically write him off on a national ticket because he's going to have some built-in advantages that other people aren't. Some, although I'll be interested to see what happens when he starts doing national media tours and in terms of in terms of the thermometer reading. Um, that said, where does this go? There is a lot of pending uh, federal legislation. Uh, there's there's a lot of talk on the federal level about what's going to happen with the federal government and, and regulation. I see in the short term a lot of fights going on in Congress about what the government can and should do in this space. I also see, because of the inability to really understand and comprehend this industry, and I'm I don't fully understand it. I ver I understand very little and I try to break it down for myself and in the process of doing that, hopefully explain some things to other people as well. Because of where I am and what I know, understanding I probably know more than many of the regulators who would be doing the regulation here uh, and I don't know much, that to me suggests that in the long run or in the medium term, there's not going to be much effective regulation because people just don't understand what they're dealing with. I imagine that might scare some people. For me, I hear that and I think potential. That's great. There's potential for, uh, for danger, yes. There's also potential for incredible, uh, for incredible development and incredible creativity. In terms of the regulation, I, I've seen a lot of proposals. There are a lot of ways to get around various types of regulation for good and for ill, right? So I'm not sure how effective a lot of these proposals will be, but there will definitely be fights playing out. This will be something certainly to watch in the months and the years to come. That will, of course, bear on any market, uh, on the stock market as well. So People, this is something that people absolutely need to have their ear to the ground on and be monitoring. This is going to be a major factor in any of your investments, whether you're a crypto person or not. It's going to play a role.
Yeah, and that crypto market swings wildly, and it's very susceptible to news, and it's very susceptible to politics. I got to imagine every time these regulation things up, that market's going to swing even more. And important people have money in crypto, which means their regular assets are going to get affected too. Exactly. Amanda Griffiths, uh, the whole piece is in reason. That's a good get. Well done. Congratulations. Thank uh, you so won't much. Return, won't return my calls. My DMs are open. <laughs> um, we're going to link the whole piece as always. Read it for yourself. Decide for yourself. She also has a lot of links in here like all good pieces do. You need to go through the links as well. Uh, we'll see where this goes. Amanda Griffiths, we always enjoy having you. Let folks know where they can keep up with you until we can get you back on Hertel again, whether it's on one of the long forms. We got to do another communism one soon. We do. We, we didn't even scratch the service on that bad boy. Uh, but until people hear from you again, let them know where they can keep up with you and find your work. Everyone can follow me on Twitter at Ajax, the Griff, A-J-A-X-T-H-E-G-R-I-F-F. And they can also follow me via my contributor page at Young Voices. That's young-voices.com. There's a list of contributors. I'm on there and you'll see all my latest work, latest media. Uh, and I always love to engage with people, get their feedback. And I love to talk about all this kind of stuff. So uh, that's where people can find me. And oftentimes on Herd Tell, talking with Andrew. Yeah, we're going to keep you in a regular rotation because you're great. You bring up interesting stuff. We will link to all that. Amanda Griffith, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been a blast as always. Thank you. I drop bombs. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. Hi, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, one of my very favorite people to talk to. He's been here frequently, although it's been way too long, buddy. You've been too busy up there yeah. in the not yet great white north, but give it a couple of weeks. You're not too far from snow, I don't figure. Uh, he's up in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. Uh, great writer, OrdinaryDadsTimes.com, and his own writing at Medium and his podcast, which we'll talk about in a minute. Dennis Saunders, how are you, sir? Great to see you again. I am doing well, and probably it will be next week when it's the great white north. You, you never know here in Minnesota. Yeah, I was just talking to one of our friends out in Colorado, and they're like, you get four distinct seasons, but they come without warning. Same thing up there. It's like, it's 70, it's snowing. It's, there's not a whole lot of transitional time, is there, up there? No, there is not. There, there is summer and then, you know, a week of fall and then six months of winter. So, yeah, this is Narnia, pretty much, <laughs> without without the Christmas. <laughs> Well, at least you got a nice lamppost, which I do know Minneapolis has. Uh, we've got a mess on our hands, my friend. Let's talk about oh, it. You gosh, were tweeting yes. about the Herschel Walker thing. Hypocritical politicians are not new. I would say that's more the norm than the exception. So I don't think that's actually the story here. No. I think the story here is the intersecting lines, the cross streams, if you will, of how people are reacting to the hypocrisy. I don't want to debate the whole thing because it, it rehashes a lot. But the, the base level of it is none of this is new. If you Googled Herschel Walker, most of this information, even though we didn't have some of the specifics, this was all already out there. So the people that are thinking, well, this is going to I don't think this actually changes this race all that much. I think it may change it a few points. And this is probably going to be a couple points race. So that may be enough. But this idea that the GOP is currently constituted after years of Trump is going to just abandon him because of this. We've already seen evidence. I don't think that's actually going to happen. 
How do you want to approach this? Because I thought you had a pretty strong line online, and I don't think you're wrong, although I would narrow it down. I don't think it's all Republicans or all conservatives or everybody on the right. But this is a this is a good test case here is like, do you have a political party? Do you have an ideology or do you have a brand that you're going to protect at all costs? Yeah. And I, I think what has happened with the GOP over the years is that the things that make up a political party, kind of the selecting of candidates, um, even the kind of the vetting, the whole um, how how you handle candidates, um, even dismissing them, the, the power is gone. I, I think a lot of that has been steadily being eroded. And that even happened, I think, before Trump came on the scene. And I think that's actually why you see the, the rise of Trump. And I, at the same time, I think there's also this really rise in identity um, in the in, within the body politic, I think, as a whole, where who we are as Republicans and as Democrats are, we're just kind of bound up in that. It, so that it now becomes who we are and becomes our kind of our brand, our identity. And um, when it comes to people like Herschel Walker, since we no longer have that kind of party discipline anymore, but we have this kind of brand, that identity that we want to protect and, and tribalism, basically what it boils down to is that how a candidate acts no longer matters. What matters is that they're on our side and they will vote our way. And, you know, does it, who cares if, you know, our candidate who says that they want to ban abortion now um, actually also obviously paid for an abortion um, many years ago and doesn't seem to be bothered by it. So, I mean, I, I think that's where we are right now. And I think you see that among the Democrats to some extent as well, but it's it's far, far more pronounced um, with the Republicans. Let's back up for a second, because I want to put a little context on this. There's a theme that runs through these stories every time we have them. Let's go back to the Obama administration. Remember the Treasury Secretary when he was the appointee and we found out all the stuff about him and Lyle was, well, we have to have him for the good of the country. The country, we got to have this guy. The line for Clinton. Well, mm -hmm. it's okay that he lied because he's the president. Look at all the wonderful things he's doing. Mm -hmm. The folks that supported Trump. Well, he's he's fighting all the right enemies. So you can pick anybody of any party yes. going back as far as you want to go. Uh, you can go back to the to the Jefferson Madison crap. You know, the, the same thing is, well, my vision is good for the country. And that stuff got really ugly in the press. It's always the same story of, well, the rationalization is, well, it doesn't matter X, Y, and Z because we really got to have this person. We're talking about Herschel Walker, who in and of himself is a celebrity candidate for the U.S. Senate. He doesn't have actual any qualifications whatsoever for the job. He doesn't know how to do the job. It's strictly a celebrity candidate. And go ahead and miss me, because if the Democrats put up a celebrity candidate, I'll say the same thing about that. He's going against a sitting U.S. senator who, good, bad, or indifferent, if you don't like it, he at least has a track record in the U.S. Senate. A very pronounced progressive. That's who he is. That's the background he came through. You judge those two records. You have a celebrity candidate and you have a very traditional progressive incumbent candidate. That's this race. So even if you're going to go to, well, we got to have this guy no matter his record, I don't find that one bit compelling here because I don't think he's really qualified for the office anyway. So now you're into, well, he's the lesser of two evil. You see where this is just becoming a swirling thing. 
yeah. it seems like we're doing it with every single freaking candidate that comes out that's on the fringes like this. Yeah. And I think it's also important to note that, you know, um, Raphael Warnock has his own issues. Um, there have been allegations like of, of um, domestic violence. And I'm, I don't want to equalize that. And I, it, this is not what aboutism, but it, it, it's the fact that especially it's more pronounced now than ever before. And it's been building over decades is that our candidate is our candidate and we will support them regardless of, of who, what they do because, you know, they'll vote the way that we want them to vote. And, you know, I, I think I was reading the other day um, an op-ed by Henry Olson, who um, in the Washington Post, who said basically that, that, you know, he's a pro-life candidate. Um, Raphael Warnock isn't, so we're just going to support him. Um, also kind of forgetting that there is another issue there. It's not just the abortion issue. I mean, there, there have been also um, repeated um, allegations of, of domestic violence with Herschel Walker as well. And again, we're just going to ignore that because he's going to vote the way that we want him to vote. Put your pastor hat on for a second. Bad behavior doesn't start with the worst behavior. It's a learned behavior. Most of the Mm -hmm. time with very few exceptions. The reason we're doing this politically is we have conditioned ourselves over many, many years to do this. And I'm I'm going to go to Clinton because that was the first election of my lifetime. But this goes before him. I'm not just picking on him. That was the first time we did it in mass media as we know it today with the Internet, yes. with mass mm-hmm. media. We did the, oh, well, he's the president. Well, any if anybody deserves some peace on the side, that's the, I heard network TV anchors yes. say that people don't believe me saying it. We had sitting United States government officials come out and say, well, we cannot allow this to derail the work of the people. That was the Clinton administration line for all of his lies. And, and we now know we didn't know as much then as we know now his other abuses of women that have been alleged and otherwise. And we had sitting people on network TV. I remember I, I remember when it was live and it became legend after that. I'm sure there's YouTube. You had people sitting on network TV and go, it's amazing how well he lies to us. It's just a marvel to behold. That happened. I, I watched it. You watched it. We're old enough to remember this. That's the first time I remember it happening. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was a Democratic president and Republican mm-hmm. response. And I talked about it on this program. Hey, look, Newt Gingrich had to resign. You know, Livingston couldn't become the speaker because he had to resign in scandal. Gingrich had scandal, and then they got replaced by Hazard, who ended up going oh, to gosh. prison for molesting children. <laughs> yes. So this is this is bipartisan mess. Mm-hmm. And then, but you want to know how you got Trump? That begot Trump eventually because you just put yes. things aside and you put it aside and the Democrats put it aside and the Republicans put it aside and the Libertarians and the Independents and the Purple Hippopotamus Party. I don't care who it is. We've done this for th- at least the 30 years I've been following politics since I was a teenager. That got us to here. Well, and, and we don't want to talk about yeah. that part of this. Nope. No. And, and I think that that's that is fascinating. I, I you know the 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 whole Clinton mess. I think in many ways, when um, Trump got into trouble um, in 2016, and now I'm forgetting that the the name of the program, but um, but the tapes that were out there and the grab him by you know the you know what, and everyone thought that, that was going to be he was going to get um, derailed by that. And what did he do? 
the the debates were coming up. He brought all of the people who had accused Bill Clinton of different um, form, either sexual harassment or or even allegations of rape. He brought them on TV, and I think that that pretty much effectively stopped any any type of of um, talk anymore about what he had done because the Democrats didn't really have anything to say. They, you know, they had a, a leader whose wife was now running for president who did a lot of the things that we were now uh, were being accused of Trump. And I think those things have a way of coming back around and biting people. And, and I think it is also in this time and age. And I think as a pastor, you know, this, the, what tribalism does is that it blinds us to our own sin. So we don't have to see the problems that we are doing. We don't have this sense of introspection. And so we're blind to that. And um, again, kind of like here, we were talking about the Herschel Walker thing. It's, it's bad, but we're not thinking about how other part, you know, this has been part of a process, but as you said, has been building over the last 30 years and that we just don't, we don't see it and don't and choose not to see it because the other guy is, is worse. And so that's why we, and so we need to, you know, elect our person so that we can um, have our policies put forward and who care and, and to make sure that the other guy doesn't get in power. other guy dennis saunders joining us the other person getting not getting in power is part of the problem here too because mm-hmm. we got we got some pretty amazing audio this week of um one person in particular just saying well i don't care just when the senate well hold on the republicans had the senate just two years ago mm-hmm. they may lose it they may gain it it may be another split senate for the next two years the senate is in the last 15 years or so it's never more than a two or three cycle thing. The Senate yep. switches hands. Why do we just stop for a second and go, wait a minute, why are you trading all this goodwill and your integrity and all this for this temporary thing that we already know historically you're not going to have for very long? And then when you get it, frankly, Republican Party, you did precious little with it when you had all three branches of government. You didn't mm-hmm. even by your own standards, you didn't do very much with it. We're always told most important election of our lifetime. If we just win the House, if we just win the Senate, both parties do this, especially the right, though. If you just win the Senate, if you just win the House, if you just get this governorship, how long are we going to dangle that carrot before people start taking some stock and go, wait a minute, this is just a perpetual thing? Because I'm on like my ninth or tenth most enforced election of our lifetimes, right? Mm -hmm. At least you're on more than that. Like. I'm just, I don't have anything pithy to say here. I'm frustrated. I don't understand why people can't see past their noses on this stuff. It's the age that we live in. It's, I mean, we're just incredibly tribal and 
all that matters is our tribe. And it doesn't even matter how long we have the house or the presidency or the governorship or the dog catcher or whatever. What matters is having it. That's that's the point. Um, it, it doesn't even matter anymore about governing. I mean, we don't really care about trying to be uh, to govern and to try to to lead a, a nation of 330 million people. It's it's really about the prize, and that is all that matters. And I don't know how that changes. I really don't. I um, like you. I'm frustrated. I mean, I. I'm someone that is fascinated by politics, but I also want politics to do something, um, to aspire to more, to try to solve um, some of the problems that we face as a nation and as a world. And, But you can't have that if all that you're doing is trying to um, just grab the presidency or the, or the Senate seat or whatever, just as a trophy. And that's kind of where we are right now. And I'm really at a loss anymore as to how we get out of that. Yeah. Dennis Saunders joining us. He's got a couple different things going like the church and main podcast. I, I wonder with our politics, with everything being personality driven, let's be honest, the parties are now secondary to the personalities. That's the real problem here. I don't know how you ever fix a, identity thing with a political solution. In other words, I think part of what's going on is we keep wanting to use the political parties to fix something cultural Mm -hmm. and the political parties keep pitching culture to try to fix the politics and never the twain will meet except in fundraising. Those those are two tracks that sometimes they intersect. That's true. But most most of the time they don't. And the thing is, you can keep that lie going for a very, very long time before they hit an intersection where it has to hit because something really big culturally or politically happens, a disaster happens, a crisis happens. Is that too cynical of a way of viewing this? Because I feel like that's kind of how this happens is you just see that other train on the parallel track and you're just assuming they're never going to collide with each other. That seems to be kind of where we're at with some of this. It is. And... I'd go even farther to say what's happened is that um, politics has become a religion and it's kind of become the kind of the, the worst aspects of religion in that um, we are so kind of bound up by who we are, um, whether that's liberal or conservative, that we can't, um, it, it, makes us kind of see the other side, not simply as someone that's, um, we disagree with, but as the enemy and that that enemy has to be defeated. And so, um, when you're kind of looking that way, I think it allows you to excuse a lot. Um, and I think that's kind of where we're at. Dennis Saunders joining us. Let's just go there with that, though. We know historically all kinds of bad stuff happens under the guise of God wills it. You know, the old Deuce Vault (laughs) from the Crusades on. Mm -hmm. God's a really bad excuse to do a lot of really bad human things. We know Mm -hmm. this is historically true. We're seeing it in the American church, and there's just no way around it. People get mad talking about this, but look, you're you're more of a mainline. You're more progressive, and I don't mean politically. I mean theologically. Mm -hmm. You're more progressive than I am. I'm more traditional. What people call evangelical, although I hate that term, and we'll debate that some other time. I, I'm 
think I come from a bit of a different tradition, but I'm way more conservative Baptist than you are. Here's where I know we agree because we talk about it so much. When you start substituting theology and politics together, I don't even know where to start with it even more, even though I've studied theology for 20 years, both academically and just because I really like it. But either either your God is an omnipotent God that knows what's going on or he's not. And if you're saying, well, I need to do this to win this election for God, that's not compatible with that. I hate to be that simple about this, <laughs> but it really is that simple. When your church starts telling you you have to do this, this and this for God politically, number one is I don't think you're honoring God. Number two is I think you're fooling yourself and giving yourself too much of power that isn't yours in the first place to go do things that really isn't in your purview to start with. Yep. That's really Reader's Digest. That's really basic. I know people can pick that apart, but I'm tired of all the ethereal arguments on this. When you get down to the core of it, that's what it is. It's you have to do what I said to do because this is, and we just tack God in front of whatever X, Y, and Z is. That is extremely unhealthy for a church. It's unhealthy for a it'd be unhealthy for an Elks organization. It's really <laughs> yeah. unhealthy for a democratic republic that is pluralistic, that is rapidly diversifying, and that, let's call it what it is, that is losing any interest whatsoever in what Christian churches have to say about much of anything with the way they're conducting themselves. And I've got data to back all of that up. But what mm-hmm. do you think? No, I agree. I, I think that churches, especially I would say in the last... 30, 40 years, we've done a bad job of being, I think, a good type of Christian witness. Um, we have kind of substituted the the rough and tumble of politics um, and kind of jammed that into religion. And then, um, and so, you know, in some ways we end up with where we're at now with Herschel Walker. So, you know, we can say, yes, abortion is sinful and bad and wrong. And we're going to also support this guy who paid for an abortion. Um, and I think there is something I was, I've heard um, David French talk about, and I've heard about it too, and you're probably familiar with it more, even more so than I am, is that there is a certain group of, of um, people in the pro-life movement that are far radical the abortion abolitionists who basically there is this sense of, of no abortion whatsoever. Um, even if it's, you know, to save the life of a mother and that if a woman has an abortion, well then they should be, um, imprisoned or punished for it. But here you have Herschel Walker, who, as I think David French says, had basically murder for hire. Um, and eh, you know, who cares? Not that much. And then we wonder why the church doesn't have that influence anymore. And, you know, yes, part of it is because we're a more diverse nation. People have other faiths and all of that. But as you have said, part of it is also our witness and um, our witness has sucked. It's, it's been terrible in that we're, we don't always live up to what we are professing. And then when we, that happens, um, when we're kind of found out, then we try to try to excuse ourselves and try to, you know, offer different things. Well, it's for this reason or for that reason. Um, and so people, I think they see through that and they have enough of it and they they walk away. Now 
Dennis Saunders joining us. I, you know, something else is going to upset anybody, but it's just, it's true. We got the data. If you, when you, I think this is a thing and I've, this has been talked about by a lot of smarter people than me. And I'm going to, I'm going to use a broad brush here because I have to, to get to the point, but just I'll admit up front, this is a broad brush. Christian evangelicalism on the right, mm-hmm. predominantly a middle-class white institution by the vast majority. They have an absolute persecution per- complex where they're so, they are quite possibly the most privileged religious subsect of people that has ever walked the face of the earth. When you talk about wealth, when you talk about influence, that like, this is fact. Christianity is a multi-billion dollar industry in America. They have privileges. And I really think there's something to it that they innately understand. Well, if I can have political persecution, that validates all my feelings and that validates my beliefs. Folks are going to get mad. I'm going to get hate mail for that. Look, I is one. I'm a Baptist. Okay. I think there's something to that accusation. I think there's validity to the accusation. They want that martyrdom complex and they substitute politics for it because, and you know, the culture's out to get me, the government's out to get me, the left's out to get me, and they are out to get my beliefs when they're really historically speaking and compared to the rest of the world, they're very cushy and they're very comfortable. I don't know if it's a guilt thing. I don't know what it is. That's a real thing. I'm convinced of it. Am I wrong? No, you're not. And that persecution complex has been around for decades. I think it's, it's, it's gotten worse over the last few years. Um, especially as, I think America has changed um, demographically and all of that. Um, there hasn't really been, there hasn't been a, been within American evangelicalism kind of a, a really deep reckoning uh, on, on things. Um, and I think that that needs to happen. Um, I'm not, even though I've, as you said, we, you know, we come from different um, backgrounds. I think there is an important American evangelicalism is important. It has an important heritage, um, but it needs at some point to, to really face up to some of its, its shortfalls. And it hasn't. Um, and I think especially during the Trump years that has been really enabled um, to continue to feel as if they are the, the victims. Um, and, I don't know what happens to bring that about. Um, kind of like a lot of things I don't that are happening in our world today. I don't have an easy answer or know how that happens, um, but it has to happen. And um, I, you know, I think both the religious and the political issues that we've been talking about, it almost feels like there has to be some type of outside crisis um a a kind of the the mother of all come to jesus moments for that to happen um and i don't know when that will happen or how that will happen but it seems like that's really the only way that something is going to change yeah dennis saunders joining us i think this is where you start having problems within the church you know again folks this is grown folk talk so if it's rough you know maybe this episode ain't for you we're just going to be real about a few things here this is how you get the mess you're having with the Southern Baptist Convention right now. 
Exactly. It's because they you we do not want to discuss our churches as power structures. Because oh, that's a that's a social justice term or that's a progressive term. No, it's just reality. I I've had on Jennifer Greenberg. I've had on these abuse experts. Every we we just did a episode on uh, the Marilyn Monroe movie on exploitation, abuse and exploitation and things like this. Whether it was Marilyn Monroe in the studio system, or kids in the church system, or the Catholic Church too, or a government organization, or even in a home with an abusive adult. It's always a power structure problem, and we have just absolutely refused to look at our churches as power structures because, especially in evangelical, conservative Christianity, we put so much power on the pastors and on the superstars and on the televangelists that they become their own little power structures, and there's no accountability anymore, which, yeah. number one, isn't biblical, and I don't want to bore people to death, but that, that's completely against anything. You don't have a Bible verse for doing that. Sorry, you don't. I've heard them all. Okay. I've been to the Sword of Lord Conference. Just miss me with that. If you do not have accountability, if you do, you know, this will preach. I, I, I've got a God in the Bible I read that says, test me. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's not afraid of accountability. If any human being holds up religion and says, no, we're not accountable, that's the biggest red flag of red flags. And yet folks still flock to these people. And that's when you get abuse, and that's when you get damage, and that's when you get people so far off the map that people really seriously get hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, the, the interesting thing about, especially about the um, Southern Baptists especially, is that because of their size, um, they have had a lot of influence in the culture. Um I think I remember we were talking earlier about uh, Bill Clinton. I think it was they came up with a very strong kind of statement. Um, I think it was at the 1998 um, convention um, about what was going on at that time. So, I mean, they have influence and yet they also did at the same time did damage to their witness because you know, they had a lot of pastors and, and other leaders and um, male leaders that were abusive, and they pretty much hid them and um, and hid what was going on. And I think we're very just horrible towards people who have been abused, in many cases, mo- mostly women, um, which then brings up another issue about the role of gender. Um, and I'm not, you know, you don't have to agree with how I view of of male female relations, um, but that was a pro- That's a problem within evangelicalism, and I, again, there needs to be at some point some type of reckoning of how do we deal with all of this. Um, doesn't mean that y'all have to become progressives, but how do you conf- come come to terms? How do you uh, repent? And how do you kind of reform? Um, Dennis Saunders joining us. This is why I love talking to him because I can throw this real heavy stuff at him and he doesn't blink. The political movements that we're seeing now on the hardening right, national Mm -hmm. conservatism, Christian nationalism, you can call these a lot of different terms, but none of this is new. This is new branding, but none of this stuff is new. 
This is the same thing that I've I've told our Catholic friends about. Uh, some of they've got their theocratic movement too, and some of them are merging with this national conservative yes. stuff. Amazingly enough, which is really really hilarious to me in a in a dark way. I don't buy you as a political movement when you can't even get your pews full on Sunday. Hmm. I mean, you're telling me that you're going to have this great Christian national awakening. You can't even fill churches up, man, but you're going to have a political movement of it. Mm -hmm. So that tells me two things. One is you're not serious about it because you would build your church first and then try to make it into a movement if that was accurate. Number two, that also tells me that you know well and good. You know well and good the limits of your movement. And... (laughs) Somebody said it on Twitter and I would cite it, but they're like, if if your movement starts with a conference, it's not a movement, it's a business model. Um, I I don't want to overplay because I think people are losing their minds a little bit about how dangerous this is because I don't think they're going to be more than a niche. I don't think they're going to be any bigger than what they really are. But I do think it's important to point it out. It's like, look, yes, America has a Christian tradition. Yes, we have in God we trust on our money. But it's more complicated than that. And if you're going to have religious freedom, you have to give people some breathing room underneath that. And when you go to this Christian nationalism stuff, you're not only not giving people breathing room, but you're actively chasing down people's rights and freedoms because those two things are just not compatible in the United States of America that's pluralistic. And it's going to hurt people that really do have faith. And that's the piece they don't understand because they don't care because it's about power, not about faith. But that's the thing. It's not for for a lot of these movements, Christian nationalism or anything. It's about power. Um, it isn't about trying to fill up the pews. It's really about trying to control the levers of power. And in some ways, I don't see this any more different than um, kind of what's going on in, in um, Russia. If you talk about the Russian Orthodox Church and um, Patriarch Kirill, same thing, very much that kind of grab power grab. It's it's not about um, the church or 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 trying to be Christ like um, to living out what um, how Christ lived. It's about gaining the control of power. But we'll just sprinkle a little religious fairy dust on it, and it'll make it all right. Yeah, I've gotten my first death threats in quite a long time because I wrote a piece that literally said, you know, Patriarch Kirill can go to hell. Because he was he was bringing back plenary indulgences for anybody that would go fight in Ukraine, which is just, I never thought Whoa. I'd beat that in my lifetime. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, the bots got after me about that. But it, whatever, even crippled, you know, pack a lunch, bring a bunch of friends. You're going to need it. Um, that's the extreme example is what Kirill's doing, where he's saying, mm-hmm. "Well, if you go off and fight, then your sins are forgiven. You go to heaven." real crusader type stuff that we should not be seeing in the year of our Lord 2022. No, that's the extreme. But like the hypocrisy thing we started out talking about, that didn't happen overnight either. You know, the Russian, that particular, I don't want to say all of them because there's also descending parts of the Russian Orthodox church. that The The official Russian Orthodox church has been corrupt for decades, going all the way back through the Soviet union. This isn't a new thing. They got there by steps. You know, the old Rich Mullins song, Sometimes by Steps. It applies to mm-hmm. this, too. That's why we need to talk about things like churches getting overtly political. And I don't care which way, because progressive churches have the same problem. They get all ate up on the politics, yep. and they, they lose their ministry. I This is why you got to start it and nip it in the bud, the Barney Fife theology. you got to nip it in the bud because the patriarch Kirill's of the world didn't start out that way. 
Mm-mm. They started out with, well, this guy's got to be in power so we can be in power. And you end up there. So, yeah, we probably won't see that in America in our lifetimes. Hopefully, who knows the way this is going. But that's why I think we do need to talk about this. It's culture and politics because it's a ball of yarn that is not, you can't separate it anymore. And religion is a, more than one of those strands of yarn in that ball now. And I don't think it's healthy for us to pretend otherwise anymore, especially people that do take their faith seriously. Look, I'm a, I'm a pitiful Christian. I'm a C-minus at best Christian. That's on my good days. I don't. I don't preach at people because I'm very well aware of my own failings and my own sin. And I just don't, you know, you can call me a hypocrite in a big hurry. And it's all true when it comes to faith, because I'm not good at it. I fail. But we, if you care at all about faith, if you care at all about religious freedom, if you care at all about your country, daggone, we better start talking about this in an adult fashion in some, some form. I I think some conflict would actually be healthy here. Because right now, everybody's just kind of doing it by, you know, osmosis and inertia. And mm-hmm. that's why we're where are we at? It's funny that you brought up um, Rich Mullins. Um, he was actually um, probably in my more evangelical days. I really and I still do loved his music. Um, there's a video that's been going around and I don't know when it was from. If I think maybe from from the early to mid 90s. So it was just before his death. Um he was someone that challenged that the evangelical culture of his day. Um, but he not only challenged it, he actually lived it out. Um, you know, he money that he got, he actually, um, had an accountant make sure that he got paid basically what was the, I guess, ongoing way average wage for someone and everything else was given away. Um, he, spent i think the last few years of his life uh working uh among um, the navajo to um, teach music um he spoke out against kind of um the i would say the cushy lifestyle sometimes that especially a lot of evangelicals were living and you know that's we need more of those type of people um in our culture today um Maybe I don't know if that's a profit or not, but I mean that that's the we are sorely lacking of those type of people who not only um who can speak out but also live it out. Um it's you know, we have a lot of people that talk a lot, but they don't really believe what they necessarily believe. It it's really all about power. Um and I think we need more rich mullins in our um in our culture and in our political life these days. Dennis Saunders joining us. I think this is a church-wide problem, especially on the evangelical right, which again, I hate that term, but it's what I got, so I got to use it, especially conservative churches. There's zero tolerance for for the dissenters anymore. Oh, there's yes. there's very little tolerance for the characters. You know, the <laughs> they just get decried as liberals and get ran out. And th- this 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 has been a long time building. You can go back to the moral majority days and the fun. Look, 
let, let, let me go to history because I want to stick to facts and not just not my opinion all the time. You can say what you want about the Christian fundamentalists of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, but when they said separation, they meant it. They didn't want nothing to do with the politics. They wanted to be left alone. They they were wrong about a lot of things, but they when they said it, they meant it, and they believed it, and they went out and lived it. Mm-hmm. This new strand of fundamental puritanism that is mixing the politics and the culture, and they're saying, well, we've got to do this, this, and this. I think that's the biggest problem they got is Nobody that's outside of their clique, nobody that's outside of that niche, and even people like me who are, you know, probably more sympathetic to them than other people because I understand where they're coming from. There's no way to look at their support of people. I'm just going to go there like a Herschel Walker, like a Donald Trump. Like if you tell me, okay, I'm supporting Donald Trump for this, this, and this reason, and he's got these failings, but I've done, okay, fine. Even if I don't agree, I heard your logical thought out argument. I'm talking about the people who pitched him as a religious leader. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the people like, oh, well, he's a Christian now, even though there's zero evidence of that whatsoever. I'm talking about the people who just slap that peg as a widget into their wheel of already existing whatever's going on in their ideology, philosophy, and theology, and just press ahead because nothing ever dents the bubble. That's where not having dissonance, that's where not getting challenged on anything, that's where having a closed loop system, to use the Apple term, because I'm not in the cult of fruit, you poor souls that are, I'm, I'm praying for you. That closed loop system, though, this is what it creates 10 out of 10 times. You can't have dissent, you can't think, you can't challenge. That's not democratic, it's not healthy, and I could argue pretty successfully, that's not really biblical either, which is mm-hmm. full of people being challenged and God himself saying, go ahead and challenge me, it's okay because I can handle it because God... This closed loop stuff is dangerous because that's where you get that power structure. That's where you get the bad political ideas. That's where you get some really nasty stuff. And all that stuff starts with being a little bit of tolerant of the long haired hippies saying, well, why don't we just feed people and not worry about the rest of it? I don't agree with them, but you hear that opinion because it'll push you a little bit mm-hmm. or, hey, let's let's debate what this verse really means or. Let's debate the ratio between doing things internally for studying and doing things outwardly in the community. Because, no, you can't just be a food bank either, because now you're not a church either. You're a food bank. But we're not having any of those conversations, it seems like. No, we're not. I, I think, you know, kind of going back to the that the GOP isn't a political party anymore, is that I think when political parties usually have some give for difference, that we're not all going to have the same opinion on the same issue um, all the time. You know, there might be people in a certain part of the country that are, you know, have more room for, or tolerance for gun, let's say, f- with for gun restrictions than um, other parts of the country. And there used to be that sense of tolerance and give. And again, when political parties... And this is all on both sides. When they become um, identities, then there you can't have dissent because if there's dissent, then that challenges the identity and it challenges who you are. I mean, I think that's, you know, the Democrats years ago, there used to be a, a healthy amount of pro-life Democrats. When I, um, I hail from Michigan, um, and Dale Kildee was the person that represented my era, a part of the state. He was a longtime pro-life Democrat. 
Um, you don't have that anymore. Um, there is no you. There is no room in the Democratic Party for dissent on that issue. And it, you know, again, when when parties basically are identities, this is what you end up with, and it's it's building towards something that's not good on for for the country. Saunders joining us, uh, using church really broadly to include everybody, Catholic, Protestant, whatever, people of faith, you know, even our Jewish friends, Muslim friends, Hindu friends, Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, we'll throw them in too because the colanders are really cool. How do we get people of faith to take religious freedom seriously? Because, frankly, the people of faith not taking religious freedom seriously is the biggest threat to religious freedom, in my opinion. It starts by seeing that that other person is a child of God. It starts by seeing them from your faith as someone that is created and um, by God and is deserving of of respect and of um, freedoms that you have, um, even if you don't agree with them. Um, and that you allow them as a, a as a Christian to be able to live out their their life in the best way that is possible. Um, the problem now is that God has become tribal, and so our gods can't see beyond anything from ourselves. And so, if there is someone that is different from us, then they're not simply different and just um should and, and we don't see them as people that have the freedom to kind of live out their lives but as the enemy that must be destroyed um and i think for anything to change we have to see each other see the person who is is different from us as someone at least within our within the christian faith as someone that is a child of god even if we don't agree with them and because of that we want to uh, give them the utmost respect. Is that why 11 a.m. on Sunday is the most segregated hour in America still? Hmm. Yes. Yeah, you know, I think it is. I think um, it's funny. I think, you know, I was just hearing something earlier um, on the um, the Dispatch podcast about the fear especially among conservative white conservatives of not wanting to be called racist, but, and obviously that makes some sense, but I think we still, especially I think within American evangelicalism, there is still an issue when it comes to race. That doesn't mean necessarily that people are running around in hoods and setting fire to things, but I think people still haven't been able to reach out and see that, someone who's African-American or, or, or Latino or whatever is, is just another person. And that it's important to build a bridge um, and not a wall. 
And, um, you know, I think we're not, at least in some parts of, of American evangelicalism, that's, that's not a, a possibility at this point. talked about this before dennis saunders with us how much of not dealing healthily with the past is affecting the current church because i think some of those wounds is showing up in the politics that we're talking about um i i don't think we've had some real good reckonings look reckonings is like a chasing a unicorn you never actually get one at least not on you know it's like earthly justice you don't really get justice you just get it as close as you can you don't really get a reckoning on things like what's happened in the history of the church in America. But what can we do today? Like, is it improving our individual conversations? Is it improving our social medias? Is it demanding? I I think a lot of it is demanding better of the churches we go to or go get you another church that will let you demand those sort of things. We're very territorial about these things. Practically speaking, we've been talking a lot of big picture and ideology and things like that practically the person sitting in a pew or a chair or on the stool and these new fancy places where they don't do chairs or pews or anything. What do those folks do that actually do want to make it better? But, you know, they don't want to have a theological debate and they don't want to have a political debate. They just want to be better people. What do they do? Give them a couple things there, pastor. You know what I would love to see more is just people talking. Um, people for for I think a lot of uh, people who um, for white evangelicals, but even for anyone, um, is to hear especially what African Americans deal with, and and to not react, just to listen, and then also for them to share their own fears and shortcomings um, without someone necessarily coming down on them, but to 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 have hash it out and to have an honest discussion. Um, I think that's really what we need is that because I don't think that you get to reconciliation, repentance and reconciliation until we can meet each other honestly with all of our faults and, and, and um, vulnerabilities and really just talk and come out to, to that. Because I think once we can get to that point where we can see each other as humans um, in need of grace and and humans that are um, faulty, but and who want to try to be better, that's really only what, the only way we're going to move forward is by really showing some sense of humility and 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 honesty in our discussions. Dennis Saunders, coming back to the politics for just a second, because I did that on purpose, knowing we were going to go wide ranging from that. That's just the entry point to it. You know, uh, speech class taught us that, you know, hypocrisy is just one of those, you know, red herrings in a debate. You're never going to solve it anyway. What do people that actually do want to care about integrity take away from something like this? Because I, 
I just had this conversation where I told somebody, like, I seriously doubt I ever get to vote for a president in the rest of my lifetime that I'm going to feel good about. And I seriously wonder if I'll ever have a president I can actually vote for for president again in my lifetime. I'm really concerned about it. I'm concerned that's a problem because I'm sorry, at my stage of life and the way I view life and my clock's ticking, I'm not dishonoring myself by voting for anybody that's not worthy of the office, period. I don't care who's against them. You can do whatever you want. That's what I'm doing. If they're not worthy of the office from dog catcher to president, I'm not voting for them. I'm not going to do it. That's just my personal thing. We're not going to get the better candidates anytime soon. So what do people do? Because this is a, let's be honest here. This isn't a cycle in the politics cycle problem. This is a generational problem. Yeah. I think that we need to demand for better candidates. Um, we need to stop thinking that we have to, you know, we have to vote for our guy um, and not have their guy win. Um, we have to really, I think, I think that as a culture, we have to demand better from, from our, from the people who choose to, or who are deciding that they want to lead us. Um, and right now we just kind of let things slide because, well, they're on our side and um, that's not good enough. I think there needs to be within with people that are willing to say enough. Um, we want something better. We want you to be better. Um, and it might mean that people sometimes have to not vote period. Um and that's hard to say, um, but if we want to have a better democracy, a better society, um, I think it means that we demand better from our candidates, that so we just don't accept them or try to excuse them just because they're on our team. Um, because when we do that, then it not only says a lot about that candidate. It says a lot about us that we don't, that in some ways we just, this doesn't matter. And we, virtue is something that matters as, as much as whatever policies or, or positions that someone has. And I think that a democratic society has to have virtuous candidates not perfect candidates, but virtuous candidates. And I th I'm, I'm fearful right now that we don't really have virtuous candidates and that is harmful for our democracy as a whole. Yeah. Dennis Saunders. And the harsh truth of that is we get, we have a representative government, which means we get the government we deserve. Yeah, exactly. Even when that's, that's a, that's a thing of omission instead of commission of, we didn't care enough to change it, mm -hmm. which means we get the candidates we deserve. Yep. So all my complaining about the candidates, it also starts with us of like, no, we, we, we tolerated it and this is where we're at. So we'll start there. could talk about this all day with you, my friend. Um, this is why we need to have you back more frequently. We both had life stuff going on. So it's been a little while. It'll be quicker next time. Dennis Saunders, let folks know where they can come up and keep up with what you've got going on. You've got multiple good podcasts going, which I don't know how you do because I have trouble keeping this one going. Uh, <laughs> you're also a great writer. You do really interesting things and takes on all sorts of things, everything from Sears to religion to everything else. Let folks know how they can keep up with you and what you got going on, my friend. Um, well, you can uh, follow me at my um, 
Well, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Denmin. It's D-E-N-M-I-N-N. Um, you can also follow along at um, my articles on Medium, which is um, DennisSanders.Medium.com. And then uh, my podcast, which is Church in Maine, which is talking about uh, religion um, and public affairs. And that is at churchandmain.org. And that's all one word. Yeah, everything he does is great. We love having him on. Uh, we'll get, we're going to get you in the regular rotation, my friend, because you're an important voice I want to keep up. You also keep me on my toes because we don't agree on everything and you push my thinking, which I always <laughs> appreciate. And you always answer my dumb, tough questions that I ask you privately, which I always appreciate as well. So Dennis Saunders, thank you so much for the time today, sir. You're welcome. We'll see you later. Thank you. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, let's go back over to the UK because there's nothing major going on over there lately, if you even tangentially look at the headlines. But uh, important topic, I'm looking forward to this. New face from our UK contributor, Sophia Warringer, is joining us from the UK. How are you, ma'am? Thank you so much for the time. Thanks so much for having me on. Great to be here. I appreciate you. Another one of our great young voices contributor. Uh, also does some other things in her own right. We'll get to that in just a little bit. Well-traveled, too. Always appreciate that. You wrote a piece about the Queen, and I know people are like, well, why are we still talking about the Queen? I want to set it up this way to you, though, because when I talk to people that work in and around Parliament, when I talk to our UK friends while that was all going on, yes, to the American audience, yes, it's mostly ceremonial. Yes, it's, you know, there's not really political power there. But when I talk to the people that actually work around, the the constant of the queen, the steadiness, the fact that she is the titular head of state, that was a real thing to parliament. It was a stabilizing force in some ways. She dies. We have total chaos. It's not all just because of that, because it's economics and other things. Is there a little element here like this may not be as chaotic and as vitriolic as it was if the queen was still there? Because everybody I talked to said that stabilization thing was a very real thing. I think you're right in some ways. I think the Queen's constant presence over most of the last century now um, and 70 years on the throne was definitely a stabilising presence in Parliament. Obviously, she would open it every new parliamentary session. Uh, she only missed two or three, I think, when she was very ill or heavily pregnant. And she was therefore a constant presence and I think also a national focus of identity, of direction, of ceremony and tradition and although her successor um, King Charles embodies much of that, his presence on the scene hasn't been quite as constant and so therefore I do feel like we have maybe lost some of that reassurance and, and steady hands and I think um, as a national figurehead she was incredibly unifying and she would not get involved in the nitty gritty of politics. She would not comment on on political day to day activities and her unifying presence will definitely be missed. And maybe there can be links drawn to the economic uh, turmoil we see ourselves now in. But it may have to have more hindsight to exactly express how those things are connected. Yeah, Sophia Warren, you're joining us. I think it's one of those passive things, though, of when you have somebody that's that revered and that respected and that beloved 
I think there was something to it of just, well, you don't want to ever embarrass or or let somebody like that down. It's a passive thing. It's not like something that's talked about. You don't get a memo at the beginning of parliament sessions like don't embarrass the queen. It's just understood that, hey, you know, when we do stuff, you know, don't embarrass the queen, don't embarrass the country. There's an element of that that we are losing in societies. We're losing it in America, certainly that kind of institutional thing the british are kind of you know y'all got that stereotype stiff upper lip carry on you got the t-shirts all that stuff is there a concern some of that might be a little bit slipping here that we're maybe decorum's kind of becoming an issue a little bit i do think the uk public showed that extent of their love and devotion to the queen and the outpouring of grief following her death and obviously the eyes of the world turned to westminster as the funeral was broadcast and i think People were quite surprised, maybe, about how emotional they became upon hearing the Queen had died. People who had never met her, um, people who had never even seen her. And I think there was something about that collective experience of loss in the country uh, that has probably disorientated a lot of people over the last few weeks and caused people to be anxious about the future, to question what is Britain's place in the world. And I think the combination of changing head of state and changing government, changing prime minister happening all very quickly after a very um, kind of tumultuous few years in politics anyway, has definitely had an impact on the national psyche and has left many people feeling rudderless. So it's very important now that the, the king and the government in whatever form that takes puts emphasis on unity and moving forward and forging a new path for Britain. We can't replicate the Queen. King Charles cannot be his mother, but he can forge his own path. And it's really important that he does that. Yeah, we'll talk about the political turmoil a little bit more in a minute, but y'all need some unity right now. And you're probably going to have some dark days before you get back to it. Let's talk about the Queen for a minute, because you were writing about it. You wrote about American Thinker. We'll link, read the whole piece. She also has a bunch of links inside the piece. You want to make sure you read through those too. When you're somebody like the Queen and you've been on the throne for 70 years and you have movies about you and you have prestige TV series about you can't help but be a stereotype. We talk about it being marbleization, you know, the famous figures, they've got their statue and you never get to the actual person underneath that. But you wrote about this. You wrote about this. That person, the stereotypes didn't always hold up. You know, they talk about her being very traditional, maybe not being, you know, progressively feminist, but she also had a husband who famously, you touch on it in the piece, always walked two paces behind her. Like, you know, some of the stereotypes do match up. Some of them don't. Walk us through a couple of those that you pointed out in your piece. So I think what's really interesting is the Queen was both very traditional and yet also very reforming. So I've talked about the changes she made to the crown um, succession of the crown act in 2013 which undid hundreds if not thousands of years of male preference primogenitor where the line of the throne succession passed to the eldest male she undid that so that any child of prince william who is now prince of wales would be equally in line to the throne whether they were born a boy or a girl and that's actually very radical particularly when you think of all of the disputes in history about not producing male heirs and all of the ways our country's history is shaped by this male preference primogenitor in the past and she quietly undid that and I think showed in that her very radical reforming agenda but always in step with honouring tradition and I think therefore some of the accolades around her 
calling her a feminist are correct in that she did believe in equality and at the heart of feminism that is what is believed but not in the way modern liberal feminists often discuss feminism which blurs the distinction of maleness and femaleness and gender and I think actually the Queen as well as being reforming in some ways was very proud of being a female ruler and proud of her femininity and so therefore stuck to more conservative um, values of her role and understood her role to be to be very uh, one of protecting institutions and conserving institutions so in both hands she was both conservative and reforming and I think she bridged that gap very well and walked that path very smoothly. Sophia Warringer joining us from over in the UK. Part of this is a perception issue because, you know, everybody's like, well, she was a very traditional woman. Well, by 1950 standards, she's pretty progressive. By 20, you know, 2022 standards, she's super conservative. How much of it is her own evolution? She reigned for so long that she spanned different eras, but she wasn't the same either. And not just because of age, she changed over time too. It was more subtle. It was more on the down low. Get us past the media perception, because I think when you look at it that way, it will change how we view her as a person first that, hey, when she came to the throne unexpectedly, by the way, people forget that part of it. She wasn't expecting to be queen when she was. It kind of got thrust upon her. There was a lot of change, even though it was subtle. And by the standards of her time throughout her lifetime, massive change and massive ways that not only the royalty and the royal family, but the way she presented and represented her country changed as well. Absolutely. She she did in some ways represent this conservatism, this tradition, but as I've mentioned, evolved into her role and saw the monarchy as involving evolving with her, I believe. And I think what is interesting is that the modern liberal feminist movement actually seeks in some ways to be more conservative, more traditional, more um Progressive than it portrays itself to be. So I mentioned in my piece the decisions to portray Joan of Arc and to understand Elizabeth I as a gender-neutral, non-binary character. And I think actually those expectations actually put what it means to be a woman into a smaller box than the Queen allowed it to be put into. So those interpretations look back strong female leaders in history and see that they displayed characteristics which were for that time unusual such as having a female head of state in the case of Elizabeth I and having someone address an army in her case the army going to defeat the Spanish Armada or Joan of Arc who led wear men's clothes she led an army she went to speak to the king all of those characteristics Modern liberal feminists are in danger of looking back at people uh, like them and deciding that because they displayed these strong characteristics of leadership 
and courage and decisive strategy, they could not possibly be female, hence the decision to portray them as gender neutral or non-binary. And yet the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, actually was more comfortable in her femininity than that their definitions allow. So she was very comfortable, obviously, in her finery, in the crown jewels, in her, her dresses and fur and feathers, but more maybe comfortable in her country clothes, rolling around in the mud, stalking deer around Balmoral, right? And we need to be very careful that we don't define leadership only through male categories. And she was able to decide that she was a leader and she was strong and she she was female. She didn't want to minimize that, but she was very comfortable with the definition of female extending to full military dress or deer stalking or all these different types of things, which modern liberal feminists are in danger of categorizing only as male. So I think in that sense, she was incredibly progressive. And I think therefore the modern liberal feminist movement is actually and ironically in danger of becoming more aggressive. I know that's not their intention, but with their narrow definitions of gender, they are in danger of that. And that's why it's so interesting. Yeah, Sophia Warren's you're joining us. You have a great antidote in here is something of a little bit of a lighter note because it's a heavy topic. Uh, it was jarring to the American audience and the international audience when you saw Princess Anne in the funeral procession in uniform, which kind of surprised some folks. And then there's, of course, the controversy that, you know, Harry couldn't wear his, but we're not we'll deal with that some other time. But you have a great little anecdote about Princess Anne having kind of a, and she was she was basically the caretaker of the Queen. She was the Queen's right hand. She spent more time with her than anybody else. She was with her every day, especially in the last few years with the health stuff. She was basically the caretaker for all practical purposes for folks that don't know. But Princess Anne had that same kind of high-minded, you know, I'm here, I'm doing my job, that kind of day-to-day bravery stuff. But you had an interesting little anecdote about the time they actually tried to kidnap her and it did not go well for that guy. Yeah, exactly. So the princess, royal princess Anne, uh, is the only daughter of the queen, and she is known for her no-nonsense approach. And there was an attempt to kidnap her from when she was driving in a car, and the person who attempted that got into the car, and she told them to go away, basically, very bluntly, told them that they were a silly man and that they should go away. She took no uh, hostages at all. She was very clear what she wanted. And I think that has... um, shows something of of the Queen as well, because their relationship was so close. It was the Queen's wishes that Princess Royal would uh, follow the coffin from Balmoral um, to Aberdeen, where it was flown to London. And she did that whole six hour journey in the car behind the coffin. And what is actually really interesting, too, is I saw the hearse and the coffin leave from London, Westminster, to go to Windsor, which is the outskirts of London. And it came near my house and the rest of the royal family were ahead of the coffin in their cars and then the coffin came and then the princess royal princess Anne followed the coffin in a separate car and I do think that shows something of the closeness of the relationship between the princess royal and her late mother and that would have been a request of the queen so the no-nonsense attitude that we see in the princess royal I think she learned um definitely from her late mother, and we can understand more about the Queen by understanding more about Princess Anne. Yeah, so fair weren't you? There was nothing in that funeral that wasn't planned out and approved down to the smallest detail. So yeah, stuff like that was absolutely not accidental. Uh, let's come back to the present day. The Queen is gone. We had the respite from UK politics. We had the great, you know, 10 days or so of national unity. 
boy, howdy, that went away real, real fast. There's an economic crisis. There's a cost of living crisis. There's migrant crises. There's all kinds of crises. Let's just be blunt. There's a leadership crisis in the UK right now. I know Liz Truss came in with a really hard hand. It looks like it's going even worse than people feared it might. There's a leadership crisis in the UK right now. This is why I opened up with, you know, even though she's not technically have political power, just having that steady and influence might be really missed right now. What's the state, you know, just common folks on the street? What are obviously you follow politics maybe more closely, but what do people think? Because the average person that doesn't follow policy and economics and politics, I got to imagine they're just looking at that and going, this is one hot mess of not good. I think the public have now a fairly short fuse for political antics. Obviously, the summer was taken up by a very insular leadership race where only MPs and then only members of the Conservative Party could vote. And therefore, most of the public looking on felt excluded from that and didn't have much patience for all of the briefing and uh, counter-briefing that was going on during that race. And they, But they were willing to put up with that because they felt like stability would be delivered at the end and there would be a leader that would take them forward into this new chapter. And I think the Prime Minister now needs to be incredibly clear with the public about her direction. If she wants to completely uh, continue to pursue this direction of tax cutting and growth, which obviously the UK needs. The UK does need growth after we recover from the pandemic. That is very important. She needs to be clear in her communication. And I think the problem has been is that she has moved too quickly for the public to keep up. And at the end of the day, people are going to look at the money that's in their pockets, right? They're going to look at their mortgage rates, which are going to be fixed for two or three or five years at a very high rate. They're going to look at how much money they have left over at the end of the month once they've paid their energy bills. And so I think economic fiscal responsibility is incredibly important. But even more important than that is the communication of the policies, the communication of the policies of where the country is going and the direction and vision for the country. And I think that's what's been lacking over this tumultuous period is that the country has not been taken on the journey of why these cuts or growth um, have, have, is important. And therefore, there's been a disconnect between the policies and the communications. And therefore, people feel very confused, very in the dark. And those most of the people in the UK, rightly so, are not in the Westminster bubble. They don't read the newspapers every day in incredible detail. They will just look at the headlines. And so it's very important that the government communicates very clearly and very top line as what's going on so that people can go on this journey with them. Yeah, Sophia Warren, you're joining us from the UK. Um, if this turns into a longer term economic crisis, let's say past next year, past one or two elections, we're going to get we're going to probably wind up with a general election sooner rather than later somewhere in here. If this turns into a multi-year recession, God forbid, or this this just doesn't seem like it's going to end. Does this go from just being a political crisis to being a transformational moment for the UK? Because it kind of is starting to feel like people are not just questioning leadership. They're starting to question the parties. They're starting to question the structure. The UK's role in the world is evolving. The demographics of the UK are changing. There's a lot of things moving at once in the UK right now. Does this feel like something that this may be a crisis that goes beyond just solving the crisis of the moment? This might be a generational change type of moment. 
I think so, because I think the death of the Queen was always going to be a seminal moment in UK identity and understanding of belonging, direction and national pride. And I think now that that has happened, we are left with this landscape, which is fairly unshaped of who we are on the global stage. What is our role? What does it mean to be British? What are British values? And I think following, obviously, from the Brexit vote, there are still quite severe divides between various people and geographical entities in the UK. And I think, therefore, we are at a crossroads as to who we are and what we stand for. And I think there's been very quick cultural change as well in the UK. If you think in comparison to America, for example, we are a very small population and we've had very big demographic shifts. We've had cultural and value shifts that have been almost over less than a decade very quickly uh, changed. And I think our sense of unity has not kept up with the sense of change. And so therefore we are definitely at a crossroads and it's important therefore that we tap back into what it is to be British and what holds us together and really focus on that. Yeah, Sophia and Warren, your crisis always reveals. So it'll be interesting to see what uh, our UK friends come out the other side of this crisis looking like. And uh, we do hope our special relationship continues because we sure do enjoy our friendship with y'all. Uh, appreciate the conversation. Love talking about this stuff. Appreciate your insight. Till we get you back on the show in the future, though, let folks know where they can follow you, what you have going on, and how they can keep up with you until we get you back on Hertel again. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at Sophia Warringer. I'm working at a think tank called the Centre for Social Justice, looking at routes in and out of poverty in the mid-2020s. So you can follow the work of the Centre for Social Justice online too. Yep, and we'll link to her page, uh, Young Voices, and also her social media. Uh, you're going to have plenty of business on that poverty thing because it looks like it's going to be tough economic times for the foreseeable future, so good luck with that. Thank you so much for the conversation and the time. Sophia Warringer, thank you very much, ma'am. back to Hertel. Okay, one of our favorites. Good friend of the program. Sharp always brings a great point of view. Gabriella Hoffman has returned to Hertel. And boy, howdy, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. We're going to talk to her about everything from Vladimir Putin to cheating at fishing. Seriously, Gabby, so great to have you back. How have you been? I've been good. Busy, as you know. I know that's a typical answer I give, but I have been busy but productive and can't complain. Now I get to take a break from travel and get to focus more so on doing commentary and whatnot. But yes, a lot to unpack with you, stemming across a whole wide swath of issue areas. Let's start with Russia. Vladimir Putin, who is celebrating a birthday, or as I call it, one year closer to God straightening him out. Um, <laughs> seriously, though, I, I want to change how we view this for a second, because obviously the war in Ukraine, that's a black and white thing to anybody yes. that's a functional adult. He invaded another country. We talk about the bad stuff. I want to highlight this a little differently, because if you look at the countries that are really bearing the burden on this thing, the Polands, the Baltic states, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania. They're not just bearing the burden. These are success stories for what happened with countries that got away from the influence of first the old Soviet Union and Vladimir Putin. He's been leaning on all these countries the entire time he's been in power. 
I think this is an important part of the narrative, especially for people in the West that have freedom of speech, that have free press. We have platforms. We need to be talking about the contrast here. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a more productive thing. Of course, we can highlight the bad, but show like, look how much freedom there's been. Look at the innovation. Look at the economic explosion. Places like the Baltic states. Look at how Poland is now leading the way of the European alliance against Russia and Ukraine. Why don't we highlight that stuff? Because that's just as important as the bad stuff. I think because where we are in fighting the culture wars, which is a noble fight, I will definitely say that. And I think there are important ones that are to be made and had there. But unfortunately, when you apply American culture wars to foreign policy in some respects, you lose sight of the essence of what is at stake here, what freedom means, what you know, having uh, allied relationships entails. And I've noticed a little bit on Twitter, I don't think so much in real life, but I'm a little worried about our compatriots on the right who are tweeting certain things saying that Russia is this noble thing. We can't anger Russia. We can't provoke Russia uh, because they have shared values and identities with us. And I want to remind your listeners that Russia was actually the first country uh, to put Marxism into practice, realistically speaking, and, and, and with very bloody consequences. And Putin is not really much of a departure from his Soviet predecessors much. He was KGB, and KGB is a relic from the Soviet times, and KGB, things of that sort. So he was groomed and ingrained in that philosophy. He's not changed. He's not different from what he was when it was the Soviet era in Russia. Now with modern Russia, which is maybe a little more free, but it's not improved. It's, it's not where Russia could be. You have these inclinations to neo-Soviet times. Like if I wrote one of my first breakout pieces for townhall.com when I started doing commentary writing on a bigger scale was that Russia still was hearkening back to the past. It was 2013. It was, I think, on the 50th anniversary of Stalin's death. And there was polling conducted among the Russian populace. And take it for what you will, a lot of it is very warped and contorted. But a lot of the Russian populace were very... I would say wish casting for Stalin. They missed him. They said he was a positive figure who had positive contributions. And Putin was similarly viewed in the same vein as Stalin. And I know this, as you very well know, and some of your listeners know, because I am of Lithuanian descent. And it's not about me and it's not about my being Lithuanian. But being a child of immigrants, uh, political refugees who fled the Soviet Union to come to this country, my parents instilled an understanding of the Kremlin And this is not to say you conflate the Kremlin with all Russian people. I think that's a big mistake. Some people do that. Uh, But unfortunately, much of the Russian populace has not challenged Putin. And a lot of them do agree, unfortunately, with his atrocities. But you, you take it from a Baltic perspective or an American perspective by way of like one generation or so from the Baltic states. Lithuania was the first of 15 nations to break away from the Soviet Union. Poland was similarly controlled by the Soviet Union, but they had their own separate dictator premier in charge, but they were not formally part of the 15 countries. Um, Ukraine was part of the 15 occupied bloc that comprised the official Soviet Union, but Poland and Czech Republic and other countries were heavily influenced by the Soviet Union. So a a clear distinction to make there, but all of them were under the sphere of influence of the USSR. But the Baltics, just because it's in their nature, they did not like being dual, uh, facing dual occupation during both. First, they had Soviet then it went back to then it went to Nazi occupation. Then fifty plus years, nearly fifty plus years of Soviet occupation again. So the Baltic countries haven't really been understood 
And I think the West turned a blind eye here in the States. We turned a blind eye to their plight. They were, my parents always said they were promised, you know, help from America and America did help a little bit, but they made a lot of concessions to the USSR. And that's a whole nother uh, <laughs> journey to go down to, or a rabbit hole to go down on. But the Baltics are an example of what happens when countries have the aptitude and the fortitude to be independent and to really make success for themselves. The Baltics, not only Lithuania, Lithuania's in my view, I, I I like where it is right now. I don't agree with some of the leadership at times. I may be questioning, you know, their foray into the EU. I think the EU does hamstring them. The Baltics are largely prosperous because they were able to break away. They joined NATO. They are very prosperous. Estonia, I would say even a little bit more technologically speaking, they have Skype, which is a popular mode of communication. People use to record interviews and to host calls. And, and they are just a case study of what happens when you have free markets reintroduced, them being for free markets, them being very anti-communist. Lithuania is one of the most outspoken countries against the CCP and also the Kremlin. Very few countries are very boldly taking stances against the CCP like Lithuania is. They even have jeopardized some of their standing in Europe because they are supporting Taiwan as well. They're not adhering to the one China policy. So that kind of snapshot overview points to the fact that when countries are able to detangle themselves from Russia, on their own volition, which is what Lithuania wanted for the longest time. Same with Estonia and Latvia and Poland and other countries that were influenced by the USSR as well. They can be prosperous and they can be a clarion call, not only to the United States, but also to their Western European neighbors about what not to do. Now you see friction between Germany, France and other Western, Western European countries and Eastern European countries about taking moral stances against the CCP, uh, divesting from Russian dependent, or dependence on Russian oil and gas. And so we should look to the Baltics as an example. We should align ourselves with them better and similarly adopt that view with Ukraine. Ukraine is not a perfect country. It does have corruption. Russia was able to kind of deceive Ukrainians and say, we're brothers in arms. We're very similar. We like the same food. We kind of talk in similar dialects and languages. But Ukrainians and Russians are totally different people. They're different ethnicities. They have different languages. And Ukraine is a lot older than Russia if we look at establishment and historical uh, evidence of that. So they're two distinct countries. They do sound very similar to the outsider, but they need to be viewed in distinct lenses. And we can criticize the government. I'm worried about funding going to Ukraine being used properly. I think that's a concern for everyone. And I think with respect to Ukraine, people don't want to see war break out. No one, to my knowledge, is calling for American boots on the ground. We were like, Ukraine, this is your battle. We're going to give you guys weapons. We're going to give you guys supplies. We want you to fight. We want you to win. I think that's a good middle ground position without going into full-scale war. But that's kind of an overview of Eastern Europe, kind of from my own understanding of it, talking to people, still having family there. And with respect to the NATO question, if we didn't have NATO, I think, like I said, I think NATO is less controversial than the EU. They're not steeped so much into politics like the EU is, unfortunately. But NATO, if Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia were not in NATO currently... I would have relatives who would be displaced persons right now. <laughs> so that goes to show the strength of NATO, however imperfect of an institution it is. Yeah, I'm about to up to my neck to Ukraine skirt was two short arguments on, you know, excusing Russia, but that's just me.
Gabriella Hoffman joining us. Something you just touched on in there that's really important, though, is the perceptions of these things. We just had a poll out. 73% of Americans in this poll still believe the U.S. Conti- should continue to support Ukraine despite the threats of nuclear weapons. This is one of those Twitter ain't real life pundits aren't yes. all the way connected things sometimes. A friend of mine that I follow on Twitter, Lauren Crow, had a really interesting point on this. He said, interesting that, I'm quoting him here, 30 years after the end of the Cold War, America still seems to intuit, just intuitively know, the optimal response to nuclear threats. I'd bet this has more to do with many Americans' firsthand experience and distaste with bullying than with our shared understanding of some game theory. But hey, I think he's really on to something here because most people are not ate up on geopolitics. Most people don't even understand things. Most people probably couldn't pick out the Baltic countries on a map or a list no. or anything else. <laughs> They inherently don't like bullies in America. They know right. when a country invades another country or leans on another country. There's just something inherently American where we don't like mm-hmm. that. We overtalk these things in principles and geopolitics. I think he's onto something there on why the base level American is going to support Ukraine over Vladimir Putin 10 out of 10 times usually. Absolutely. And your friend is correct in that respect because I think the Cold War is still very fresh in a lot of people's minds, even people around our age. I'm in my early 30s. And for me, I am a descendant of people who escaped that system. And my grandparents had it really, really bad. Uh, They were in various labor camps. My grandpa on my mom's side survived 18 months in a Russian gulag on the Finnish-Russian border. So those horrors are very raw to me. I understand what Russia is capable of, even though I don't hold a foreign policy credential I'm just very attuned to these issues. I have friends in Eastern Europe. I have friends who deal very deeply in these issues as well. I have one one of my friends is making the maps that everyone sees from the Institute for the Study of War. My friend George Barros is responsible for putting out those maps. And I lean on him and others who are fully vested in this issue to get information to extrapolate. And I have a lot of Ukrainian friends. It's a personal thing. You talk to Ukrainians who came here because They either grew up in the last vestiges of, they escaped the last vestiges of the Soviet Union, their parents, their grandparents remember what happened in Ukraine with Russian occupation, with Golodomor, which is one of the worst genocides ever that people, especially in Russia, continue to downplay. And I think it goes back to your friend's point. And it's really interesting to me, kind of separate, but similarly related. I see a lot of people who call themselves conservative and anti-communist, yet they're rooting for Russia over Ukraine. And that principally strikes me as inconsistent. How can you say you're anti-Marxist and you're championing or you're kind of leaning with or or you're you're siding with Russia over Ukraine, not or being ignorant of history about what Russia did to Ukraine, the the Marxist policies that were imposed there, the genocide, the famine, uh, the the various uh, imprisonments and and stint and victimization of individual Ukrainians. It is true that people, even with the influence of Twitter, and I think a lot of people, like I said, they're steeped into culture wars and they're applying what's happening here to the conversation in Ukraine. And they're, I think they're mistaken to do that because this is a totally different issue. And it doesn't mean that uh, you can't care about what happens domestically and not care about what happens abroad. I think some people on the right are falling into the trap that you only can care about one subset of issues or one issue. And we're not made, we're not structured like that as human beings and as political commentators. We can focus on many things. We can address many issues to limit ourselves and to stand idly by and be quiet when Russia is doing this. Just like I said, even from a moral standpoint, 
it is a lot of cognitive dissonance online, but I am encouraged by polls. I am encouraged by people outside of Twitter because I think Twitter, again, it does lean far to the left, but when it comes to certain elements on the right, Twitter is not a full representation of what Republicans or center-right folks are thinking. You talk to most people and they say, yeah, I do support Ukraine's plight. Is it entirely perfect? No, but I know who's the enemy here. I know who should win here, and we want to see freedom prevail over tyranny. Going back to Ukraine's plight, historically speaking. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. Gabrielle Hoffman joining us. I think that's an important thing to take away from this when we deal with Vladimir Putin for this reason. He chose to do this. And I think especially in the West, because we have this real level of, look, if you get a right and talk for a living, you're pretty privileged. Let's just be honest about this. The commentariat in the news media in the West, especially in America, we lose perspective on these things really quick that, hey, sometimes in history, frequently, you just get a really bad actor that is impervious to logic and reason, and you've got to deal with them because they're going to push until they make you deal with them. And I think too much of this, we try to put our Western spin on it and don't realize, like, for whatever reason, Vladimir Putin did this. He was trying to get a national unification moment. He really does want to put together, not that even the Soviet, the old imperial Russian empire, yeah. what he's really looking to do. His, he's got age. Uh, there's all kinds of rumors about his health situation. Mm -hmm. Whatever triggered this in his mind to make this logically horrible decision, because everybody knew that, like, look, even if you take it, you can't hold it. I don't think we do a really good job in Western punditry and commentary of just acknowledging, like, there's bad faith actors. Peace is the exception. War is the norm historically. And we should prepare ourselves for that thing. I think we're a little spoiled and it shows when we go to deal with things like Vladimir Putin and the really bad actors in the world. Absolutely. And I think people underestimate his influence. People say, well, China's the bigger threat than Russia. And that may be true. I don't deny that. I think China is a huge threat. But people forget that the Kremlin and the CCP are very in sync. They're very much aligned. They have the same goals. And it was because of Soviet Russia that there was a Mao Zedong, that there was the Great Leap Forward. People, again, not knowing history can be your downfall as a commentator. You should have some depth and perception and not look at like, a very small time frame. You need to look big picture. We see this kind of small, isolated, big picture analysis or small picture analysis concentrated not only on foreign policy, you see it on environmental issues. People look at a small scope and then they make their assumptions and their claims through that without looking at the big picture. When you look at the big picture, you could see that Russia has been agitating a lot of the world's adversaries. They've been involved, they've shared ideas, they've trained militarily, they've uh, signed memorandums of understanding. They've they've worked in sync. Russia and China have worked in sync. And we haven't pushed away Russia to fall into the arms of China. They've been working behind the scenes for a very long time. And you can view both of those as threats. Uh, one may be more immediate. The other may be uh, more, ex you know, more kind of in the periphery, in the background. But you can view, like I said, you can deem problematic. You can, you can deem uh, different um, adversaries as problematic and, and assess what pr threats they pose. And so that that's kind of short-sighted to say like, well, China's our only threat, but Russia is not. But it's like, well, there wouldn't be a China, like a Marxist China, a CCP without the Soviet Union. People don't know that, or they fail to remember that. 
And I think that's really important to hone in on. And I, and I would hope people do that. But you can, I've tried to reason with certain people, especially on the right, who are like, oh, no, no, we're just going to do like through this lens. Like if you support Ukraine, you're a Bidenite. And like, I disagree with Biden wholeheartedly. I don't support much of his policies, but that doesn't make me supportive of the president. It's just, I have, I cared about Ukraine long before this, this war broke out. And I do get a little peeved by some insincerity of people who do display Ukrainian flags without knowing the context behind it or knowing what the country was before this year. I don't like the virtue signaling on that end either. But I think people have to learn history. If you want to be consistently anti-Marxist, you need to see what Russia did to Ukraine through much of the 20th century. And I would hope that the dialogue does improve, but it doesn't help when we have certain media personalities kind of giving an odd to Russian propaganda at times and, and people just parroting that and saying that if you in any way support Ukraine, that makes you complicit with elites and globalism. It's like, well, I'm questioning of elites. Like, why are you why are you placing this? So again, we kind of have a myopic view of foreign policy. And I think people have this notion of I was just reading a book um, about um, how social media has kind of made history as a profession. Um kind of um, put it put the profession into question because now everyone does something like or people lean more so on e-history so they make their own version of history and the the professionals and those closest to uh the occupation are not news making much on it you have other people who are kind of diluting history or uh, making it as their own and so we need to be cautious about ignoring history creating a narrative for bite-sized digestible consumption and really distorting where public opinion is on this matter. Again, taking out the war equation. Like I said, I don't think many people want to go into war um, given all the problems we have here at home, but we can still morally and militarily support Ukraine without having boots on the ground. Yeah, Gabriella Hoffman joining us. There's that old saying in uh, journalism about journalism supposed to be the first draft of history. I think that's kind of gone by the wayside and it touches on what you're talking about. Uh, put your conservation hat on for just a second. You were writing about lead bans. Uh, yes. Let's go to some domestic policy real quick. Lead in water is a massive problem. We know all the history on that. We've seen what's happened in municipalities. We've seen it in places like Flint. We've seen other water problems like what's going on in Jackson, Mississippi, which is mostly government incompetence, but we'll hash that out later. The lead ban you're talking about is not directly what we're talking about, like lead in in water or lead in paint that kids can get into or asbestos or lead in home things. This is a different thing, but it's got the word lead in it. So people kind of freaked out a little bit. Mm -hmm. You kind of turned the noise down on this. You got to the basics of it, and you think this is maybe one of those things where <laughs> nomenclature really, really mattered and the way they wrote this in black and white having some major unintended consequences. Right, all the while ignoring the science. So a lot of environmentalists love to conflate pure lead, the toxic lead like you mentioned, that is found in traces of flint water in Michigan and elsewhere and in lead paint. These are lead fragments. These are very minuscule in the stream of things. And you're not consuming these lead fragments when you're hunting or fishing. Uh, when, with respect to hunting, as you very well know, and many of your listeners probably will know, when you're hunting, you are largely dealing with a small amount of lead. And when you're field dressing and processing your meat, your deer, whatever, you are taking out those lead fragments to make sure that it doesn't take your meat. And if you get it out within a few hours, you'll be fine. If you let it stay there for days upon end, that may be a whole different story, but hunters are responsible enough to not leave lead in their animal. And I think we can leave it to hunters and anglers to be responsible about their lead usage without government policing their behavior. And what I meant with saying there's a denial of science with respect to lead 
I've written extensively about this at Real Clear Policy and also at townhall.com, examining do lead components pose as much of a threat as like consuming pure lead? And I was able to debunk that very easily because the CDC itself said in its most recent scholarship on this issue, when you account for, let's say, um, I think it's uh, blood levels with respect to lead components or containments of lead in in blood, blood levels. And they they assessed, you know, uh, blood levels with lead fragments in deer versus uh, no lead fragments in deer. And it was like a statistical null conclusion. It was like maybe a 0 0.03 or 0.3 difference. Very, very minuscule. It was statistically insignificant in the grand scheme of things. So their own government agencies have proven that lead fragments, when handled, not consumed, don't pose a threat. And there hasn't really been much of studies. They've, they've pointed to the condor. They've pointed to endangered birds in, ingesting it. But that's very limited. And the condor has now gotten, I would say, restored to its its glory. It, it's, it's recovered. It's recovering. It's not endangered anymore. And they're making a comeback. Uh, because people are more careful about what they use in the field. And also, um, not just about hunters and, and anglers using lead components, it's also, you know, what other threats are posed to endangered birds too. We have uh, renewable energy that also could be a threat to endangered birds as well. Um, but they're not painting the full picture. They're trying to paint an emotional story, isolating it to, well, you're going to hurt the plight of this condor, you're going to hurt the plight of eagles if you continue to use lead. And the Biden administration leaned on a complaint from a special interest group, an environmental organization called the Center for Biological Diversity. They're always suing the government to displace conservation stakeholders from the table. And what they did here is they said, well, you cannot open up 2 million acres to new hunting and fishing opportunities because lead components, in their view, pure lead, but it's actually lead components, pose the greatest threat to endangered species, to grizzly bears, to snakes, to whatever. And like I said, with, with the findings of blood levels, and 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 the conclusions of it there there is no impact thus far the fishing and hunting interests i've spoken to i've spoken to trade representatives from the hunting side and also the fishing side and they have said unless we're presented new material pointing to the fact that lead usage in fishing and tackle or bullets or ammunition is found to be disproportionately bad we will reassess and we will stop using this but they said right now there's no evidence pointing to that and what it's done What's done here is rather to incrementally po impose bans on hunting and fishing. This is what environmentalists want to do. It sounds very sinister, but having followed their machinations for quite a bit of time, they find these little baby step moves to get the public on their side gradually or to force public behavior to change when it comes to consuming different activities or certain components. So when you eliminate lead tackle and bullets, what is shown to happen in California, no less, of course, California adopted a full ban initial findings that or initial studies that went into this prohibition of ban uh, lead tackle and bullets, they estimated that several uh, thousand people would be displaced from the outdoor industry. It would lead to potentially 36 to 40 percent of hunters and anglers not going hunting and fishing because they would be priced out of the activities. And then it ultimately led to a shortage of conservation funding. It has a ripple effect down the, the chain of command. You know, when people stop buying goods, it impacts livelihoods. It leads to fewer conservation dollars being generated. And then it leads to fewer people going outdoors. So people see these restrictions, incremental restrictions, as impeding on your lifestyle. And when you do something like this, and the administration in this case went through with it with their new proposal to open 18 new public lands on National Wildlife Refuges under the Fish and Wildlife Service, 
that gives the administration permission to potentially ban other forms of hunting, maybe not the accessories. Maybe they will say, okay, no grizzly bear management, or okay, no black bear management, even though the science says you have to manage those species, no matter how cuddly or cute they are. So this this invites incremental abridgments to your ability to hunt and fish. Um, it's not enshrined in the U.S. Constitution, but different state constitutions have right to hunt and fish amendments enshrined in their respective chambers. And so people see this as an attack on their livelihoods, as an attack on these activities. And if you claim to be for public lands access, you shouldn't be making it harder, economically speaking, for people, especially newbies and newbies who are not your traditional hunters and anglers, mostly black Americans, Hispanic Americans, women, children, young people, people who have never once picked up a rod or picked up a hunting rifle. They're the ones who are going to be displaced by this. And that's so counterintuitive. And it's very much against the public lands ethos that we have here. Yeah, Gabriella Hoffman. Okay, here's a usage of lead that was damaging, but not in the way you normally think of it as. So we got, this went viral. These two yahoos up in Ohio yes. <laughs> uh, that got caught cheating. And the reason the lead comes into it is they were using, these are, these are called egg, egg sinkers um, for people that don't hunt and fish. It, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's just an egg-shaped chunk of lead that you put on a fishing. We use them for tout lining where you want the bait to sit down at the bottom of the lake they use lead sinkers and fish fillets and they were stuffing their fish and cheating. When you found out how these guys got caught though, I love this so much. The suspicions actually arose because number one, these were two guys that went on a hot streak winning, but they were only doing local tournaments. That was number one. But number two is, and the tournament director that caught him said, and this is the quote, he said, we thought it was odd. They wanted to take their five fish and go home and not donate it to the helping hands of St. Louis. What they were doing was all the heavy fish. They were donating it to this food charity, right? Mm -hmm. Cause they're not cutting these up. They cut these ones up cause they were cheating. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to take their fish and go home. They actually got caught by the charity aspect of this. Plus the fact they were greedy and kept doing it and they've everybody caught on and they got caught, but not the way you normally see lead, but I know you're a big hunter and fisherman. You like fishing this is kind of humorous in one way. There's a lot of money involved in these things, by the mm -hmm. way. So it is fraud and the police are now involved. I'm sure there'll be charges, but I just want your opinion on it. Cause I know you like the fish about these two yahoos and their lead weight. I thought the fish fillets inside the fish was at least creative. I'd never seen that one before, but what do you think of these guys? Before we went on the air, we were talking about the phenomenon of cheating creeping into all these different sports. You look at football, baseball, what have you. Now it's creeping into fishing, which is supposed to be this wholesome activity. You don't think tournament fishing is plagued by all these cheating scandals. Now we can say they have been. And it calls into question, do other people have these practices too? And, and with these two individuals in particular, I suspect they were probably doing nefarious tactics beforehand, uh, maybe in the most recent uh, year. Because how else would you prime yourself for winning so much money? So maybe their previous records and wins will be called into question too. And it's humorous. I love the memes that are coming out of it. Like you could take some levity from this really bad situation and be like, see, everyone's in agreement that these guys are yahoos, that they should lose their fishing privileges. Some people are like, well, it's too harsh to say they should lose their fishing privileges. But when you violate, you know, the basic standards and, and the conditions you agree to that you would be ethical you would harvest the fish reasonably. You would, in the case that you mentioned, donate the proceeds or donate your earnings or rather donate the fish that you harvested to a local charity. When you violate all those different principles, I think you should face a stiff penalty. It's much like with poaching and hunting. If you violate the rules, ethics, you you take more than your lot, you're hunting out of season, you're hunting illegally, you need to be made an example of because then it's, it's saying if you get a lenient punishment, then it's saying, okay, your behavior weirdly wasn't that problematic. We'll let you off the hook. You could do this again. 
So I think these individuals need to, I don't know about a permanent ban. I think they should have, let's say a, a quasi permanent ban. Maybe they can uh, try to work towards good behavior and restore you know, trust within the public. But I think they need to face a little bit of a penalty. They need at least five years, 10 years, no tournament fishing, maybe a permanent ban on, on tournament fishing, but a temporary penalty on their fishing licenses too, because what poaching may be, what, or what unethical behavior may they be engaged in if they're recreationally fishing? That should call into question, maybe they're doing some really shady behavior when they're not competing in tournaments too. So I think a, a penalty needs to be had. They need to be made an example of because it'll further create discord. I was talking to uh, even female tournament anglers who've said this behavior is not isolated. Sometimes this does happen even more than what's being reported. And it doesn't make and, and boost morale uh, with respect to, to fishing's integrity. And so the memes are great. I think these anglers need to be made an example of have no proximity to tournament angling, pay restitution, pay fines, and to really see the error of their ways and, and to beg for forgiveness because conservation, it's a fish, our, our fish, the wild animals that we pursue, they're a public good. They're meant for us, you know, they're, they're available for us to steward, to enjoy, to harvest in regulated means, not to cheat the system when you're competing in tournaments, not to uh, bloviate, not to obviously in, inflate certain things and conditions. You have to go according to ethics because People will take these examples. I could envision animal rights advocates saying, and any, you know, believe it or not, PETA does go after fishing too. They they hate cra people eating crabs. They have a really uh, fine hatred of Maryland crab eating. They hate hunters. Absolutely. They also dislike recreational fishing and they say that fish have feelings. Therefore, we shouldn't fish. And so they could use this opportunity and say, see, look what they're doing. They're hurting the fish. They're stuffing it with dangerous toxic lead and they're also stuffing it with fish fillets. So we need to ban tournament fishing. This gives opportunists in environmental interests to seize upon these incidents and to further restrict people. So we need to be careful about how we present ourselves, exhibit ethical behavior. If you're catching and releasing, showing the release, acknowledging you released, not showing gory pictures, not cheating, uh, because we have a responsibility to be good examples for these activities, even on a recreational basis. I don't tournament fish, but I, I know a little of the dynamics, but you can apply it consistently recreationally and, and tournament fishing. But um, People have good impressions of these activities. We need to keep that because the livelihoods are under assault all the time and this could be used to hurt us. So that's what I think the takeaway from this walleye cheating situation is. I hope your listeners agree with that too. <laughs> yeah, Gabrielle Hoffman, I'm going to disagree with you on one thing. People have been lying and cheating about fishing since the first pole went in the water. Right. I'll prove it to you right now. How big was that last fish you caught? That was 45 inches. This big you know and you do gabriella hoffman. <laughs> yeah you measure it uh gabriella hoffman outstanding stuff uh you've been all over the place we're going to link to the piece uh the lead band piece was in iwf we'll link to that we'll also link to the rest of her work because you're all over the place you're writing a lot you're talking a lot till we get you back on her till next time let folks know where they can keep up with all that crazy stuff you're doing even though you're going to be homebound for at least a week or two mm -hmm. now yes i'm excited to stay put here in the northern virginia area but if your listeners wish to connect with me and you've been very generous with teeing up my podcast i really appreciate that listen to district of conservation we have phenomenal guests coming on the pipeline i've been interviewing a lot of newsmakers we'll be interviewing a lot of i think virginia department heads i'm going to talk to our conservation officer and maybe our agriculture 
cabinet member uh, in the coming months, hopefully some national newsmaker soon. But I'm even talking to people in the field who are not really well known, but have something interesting to say. So District of Conservation on all podcasts played. I'm on social media, easily denoted by blue check marks. You can follow my musings at Young Voices, where Andrew and I have first linked up uh, a while ago, but we're both part of the Young Voices contributor program. If you're in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic, we are actively recruiting new contributors for our program. So talk to me if you have an interest in wanting to elevate your commentary or commenting career, media career. We would love to uh, in uh, we would love to have your application come through and, and we would love to welcome your interest to the program as well. I'm also actively writing at townhall.com. I'm a senior fellow with Independent Women's Forum. I have lots of other writings. I have a YouTube channel where I do post my interviews, but I also post like fun travels that I do to national parks, public lands, fishing, hunting, things of that sort. I have a hunting trip coming up, going to be hunting largely with a exclusive group of females in Georgia sometime really soon. So I'm going to highlight that. I'm going to be reviewing some new boots that I received uh, from Irish Setter. So I have some cool stuff. I have like a mix of like political commentary, um, video overviews, and then also product reviews sometime relating to hunting and fishing. So I hope you all connect with me and thank you for hearing me on the program today. Yeah, we uh, actually advertise it because it's that good of a program. Gabriella Hoffman, you're great. See you again soon, my friend. Thanks for the time. Thank you, Andrew. Lovely chatting with you. Thank you, ma'am. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.